0: Atlantis being advanced, advanced technology, advanced something.
1: The history of Atlantis.
0: So how does that concept of advanced, given what Plato says in the dialogues, fit into the views of traditional historians? That's the question we have to answer. Specifically, we're talking about agricultural, and maybe they're advanced in agriculture. Plato spends time talking about how they organized themselves They seem to be advanced organizationally. He talks about a lot of agricultural prowess. He mentions 60,000, 10 by 10 stadia farms. We'll do another video on what a stadia is. Just know 10 stadia is about a mile, so there would be 60,000, one mile square farm plots. But It also tells us the Atlanteans were very good at controlling the flow of water. They dug a massive irrigation ditch. One of their dishes was 10,000 stadia. That's a lot lot of ditch. And the last thing, I don't know how we can use this in analysis, but it's one of the last things I pulled out when it came to the word advanced, is that whatever else was going on, the Atlanteans were not very good at war. While they were able to conquer Libya and Egypt and parts of Europe, they couldn't beat the Greeks. And in 9600 BCE, these aren't the Greeks that we think of when we see movies and TV shows. These are basically proto-Greeks. So very early civilizations were able to beat the Atlanteans. So the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture, they're probably advanced, they seem to be advanced in how they structured their society. But they were not overly advanced at war. That wasn't, that doesn't seem to be what they were good at. And those three statements are all supported by the Platonic dialogue. Thank you for sticking with me through the requirements analysis. I know it was a little tedious and we're wading through waters that other people have been through already. But I think it's important for us to take a clean look at this and to have done the analysis ourselves as opposed to picking a source and using a third party to tell us what the dialogues say. Instead we just went through them and we've now derived our own list uh, firsthand from the primary source. So the question becomes, where do we look? I think it'd be naive to ignore all of the locations that people have identified as having characteristics that lead some people to believe that location is the lost, I guess, lost city. That seems to be what they look for. They tend to look for the city. So I've collected a list of 12 places that seem to be the ones that are most popular as locations for Atlantis. If you notice a location up here that would fit on this map somewhere that I don't have, please let me know. It's going to take a while to get through all of these and to do the analysis, so there's plenty of time to add an additional location or two in as we go through this. We're going to start with the ones that are closest to Greece, Santorini, Crete, and Malta. Then we'll move out into um, the ones that are closest to the Strait of Gibraltar, So Cadiz, the Seuss Mesa, the Rishats, Russia, Canary Islands, and the Azores. And then we'll look at the ones that are probably too far away to be the capital city. So these would be candidates for some of those provinces that we talked about ruled by the sets of twins. Well, they're they're not ruled in sets of twins, but they're ruled by twins who were born in sets because they're twins. And that's Doggerland, Antarctica, Bimini, and Ashley, and I know Ashland is actually farther west, but I, it was hard to, to land on the size of the map that allowed us to see all of these. If you notice something missing, please let me know. There's plenty of time to add it in. Make the resolution to get better sleep this year with a new mattress from Ashley. Bring home your choice of comfort on select Ashley Sleep Queen mattresses starting at just $449.99. Visit your local Ashley store or ashley.com for better sleep and savings. degree at ASU is a journey that can take you anywhere, into a world of renowned award-winning faculty. Becoming your best starts with learning from the best. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to test the seafaring navigation routes that we can project back into this time period. I've looked at the generic trade routes as they emerge through the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, and I'll show you a genericized version of those. First though, I wanted to see if I could find the first time, and the only first time I could find is Columbus. Now I know we can argue that Columbus didn't, isn't the first seafarer to discover North America, but I'm not arguing that, I just wanna see for someone who didn't know how to get there but was using all the information they could gather, what routes did they take? One of the things that people tend to forget is Columbus sailed to the New World four different times. So here we can look at the way he went each time. And what happens is as he learns the tides and he learns the currents and he learns how to get there, he continues to make his route farther south which I think we can use to denote the zones that we're looking for of an Atlantean empire. We're told the capital city is directly outside of the Strait the of Heracles, which we interpret as the Strait of Gibraltar. So directly is an ambiguous term, but it's not a completely meaningless term. I've drawn three zones here that we can use um, to interpret that word directly with obviously zone one being the most directly zone two kind of directly and zone three arguably directly so i think the locations that line up in these zones are the ones that we will at least start with our analysis of the capital city trying to find that you know another important point is that this isn't a game of winners and losers So we don't have this idea of someone's going to win if the place they think is Atlantis is also the location of the capital city. Atlantis is a big word, it was a big kingdom, and it can mean a lot of things. There's no reason to believe that the provinces that Plato mentions were any less advanced, whatever advanced means, um, than the capital city was. We just have to start putting some milestones down, some markers down, so that we can figure out exactly what he's talking about. Because if we can find the capital, if that exists, then it's reasonable to assume that those provinces exist. And if the provinces exist and the capital exists and we've found stuff at all these locations that points back to Atlantis, then all of these locations are in the kingdom of Atlantis and they're one of those named provinces in the twins list. We just have to figure all this out. So that's how we're going to go about organizing all of these locations that we look at. I'm excited to get started. I hope you are too. First up. Let's do Crete. What we're working towards is called a grand unified theory of Atlantis. One of the items we have to overcome as we examine all of the different potential locations is what is called the fool's choice. The fool's choice is when you are presented with a question and believe that the answer is selecting one of many possibilities. It's called the fool's choice because in the answer you believe that you cannot consider all of the potential answers, all the possibilities, but then you have to pick one. If you remember, this was exactly the type of thinking, the fool's choice that we came up against when we were doing our Critias analysis. And for thousands of years, scholars have been forcing a fool's choice when it comes to identifying which Critias is speaking. People have tried to assume it's either Critias the grandfather or Critias the tyrant, the answer, of course, is that it, one dialogue is one of them, and the other dialogue is the other of them. That was a fool's choice, and we've all fallen for it. So I'm going to introduce here, in our grand unified theory of Atlantis, the critius Clause. And the critius Clause is basically how we're going to combat that fool's choice. Basically, when confronted with a choice between A or B, we are also going to consider A and B. It might seem obvious to do this, But if you think about it, if you enter into any conversation with someone who has passion for Atlantis, what's going to happen is they're going to think it's location A. If you don't agree with them, you think it's location B. You will then argue because the belief is it can only be location A or location B. Atlantis was three things. It was a city, a continent, a kingdom. So so why do we insist on trying to find Atlantis? What what do we even mean when we say that word Atlantis? (laughs) Usually what I hear is they're applying the concept of the continent and kingdom to the city. It's a really weird way of looking at things. Atlantis is at least ten different places. We know that. It's a a capital city and nine provinces, ten locations total. So when we look for Atlantis, we're going to try and identify whether it was a capital city or one of the provinces. The other thing I realized we need to clean up is the unit of measure that's being used in the dialogue. It's this thing called a stadia. There is some arguable confusion. Yeah, that's not the right word. You can choose a couple different values for a stadia depending on how you decide to ground the dialogue. We're going to ground the dialogue along its common sense and, and obvious nature, meaning Plato wrote during a time when the Greek stadia was 606.9 feet, when it was 607 feet. This became the what they call the Alexandrian measure from Alexander the Great. Both Plato and Alexander the Great lived at the same time, Play was a lot older, Alexander uh, was a lot younger, but they think they've had twelve years of overlap. And then this measurement of a stadia went on through Roman times to kind of hold it as 607 feet. So that's what we're going to use here. So the first unit of measure we need to convert is a tool that we're going to use to identify all these different locations, whether it's a candidate for the capital city or a candidate for one of the provinces. And there was a line that I presented in one of the earlier videos that is very rarely used, but I think it's the perfect benchmark for us to use as a geographic identifier on whether a place could be the capital city or not. And that's this quote here. It says, the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain, itself surrounded by mountains, which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even and of an oblong shape, extending in the one direction, 3000 stadia. So we're gonna use that 3000 stadia. So we have to convert that into some unit of measure we can use, I'm gonna convert it into miles because I'm sitting here in Florida, in America, and we use miles. So if you do the math, you multiply 3,000 times 607 feet, then you divide that by a mile, which is 5,280 feet. And what you end up with, rounded, is 345 miles. That means projecting back in time and taking the sea levels during the last ice age, into account, which we have tools to do, and we will do that as we look at these different locations, we have to find a landmass that could have a 345 mile gentle slope towards the sea with mountains on one side. That is the criteria for the landmass that the capital city sits in. So, if we can't find that landmass in the places we're looking, then it's, we're not going to do the capital city analysis because there's no point. So up first we're going to look at Crete. The first thing I did is I went to a flood map and I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, which is uh, kind of the average standard that academics believe the sea was um, lowered, 400 feet, which is 125 meters, which is what you're seeing here. That's how far down they think the sea level was at the peak of the last ice age. What you find on these maps is, when you're looking at this, the the darker blue or the kind of purple, that's water. And then the light blue that you see, we see a lot of it over by uh, Mali and Sicily um, and some on the lower African coast, lower left-hand side. Uh, That light blue is land that would be exposed if the sea was 400 feet lower that is currently underwater. So when we're looking at Crete, which is that island uh, right above um, my head, kind of up and to the left just a little bit, You can see that uh, there's a little bit more blue, so I know we're zoomed out pretty good. Uh, But this doesn't add a tremendous amount of new land. No no substantial land masses become exposed. And also notice that it's not like there's some land bridge to Crete or anything. In order to get to this island, even during the last ice age, you're going to have to traverse water. (laughs) we <laughs> Crete's also a good one to start with because, honestly, any documentary or book or almost everything you see on Atlantis, it almost starts, almost always starts with Crete, so it feels like we ought to start there, too. Uh, the only difference being that we are coming in looking for Atlantis with both a capital A and a little A. We, we're looking for the capital city, which would be the capital A Atlantis, and then we're looking for all of those provinces. There's nine provinces. Crete becomes intriguing because it checks almost all of the boxes. Almost all of the boxes. There, there's when when you watch the documentaries, when I've watched people explain Crete, they can also almost they can usually almost line the whole thing up, but then at the very end it becomes unfrazzled because they're looking for dates around 900 BCE instead of 9,000 BCE. What's interesting about Crete, though, is that it's established. Academic knowledge is mainstream. The mainstream view is that it has been habitated by people for 130,000 years. And I showed you the Mediterranean around Crete with the sea level lowered 400 feet, which would be the level of the last ice age. There's no <laughs> land bridge to Crete. You're not getting there by walking, you're getting there by boat. So 130,000 years ago, there were people on Crete. The only implication of that, not the only one, a a major implication of that is that if there were people there, they had to have gotten there by boat. They didn't swim. It's too far to swim. The other interesting thing is on Crete, we see a Neolithic farming culture, and it's firmly established as far back as 7,000 BCE. There's also evidence of an earlier culture that that farming culture replaced, and then around 3,000 BCE, we see the Minoans, We see that culture come into that Neolithic farming culture on Crete. So continuous occupation, we can look back and see these cultures. The other interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about the Minoans is there's two sets of scripts, what they call Minoan script, and also Linear A, which are both, uh, they believe, uh, procedures of Linear B. Linear B has been deciphered, but no script and Linear A still have not been deciphered. So we have writing uh, that we find on Crete that we cannot read and dates far back into the past before any known other writing. We also know that um, Crete has been occupied for at least 130,000 years. When we look at it, there's clearly a bulk culture. There is something exotic about the culture that we see on Crete. It's a high culture, and it seems very mature. There are well-documented ruins there. The climate in 9600 BCE was a good climate just like it is today. And Crete is accessible via the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, which was one of our criteria. However, there are some real problems with Crete being the Atlantean capital. It's really too close to the world that Plato knew. It's too close to Egypt. It's not outside the Strait of Gibraltar. There's some arguments that there are other straits that could be interpreted as the Strait of Heracles. But Crete, it's actually part of Greece, and geographically it's so close, Plato would have known about it, and he wouldn't have told us, uh, he wouldn't have used Crete, he wouldn't have described Crete to us while telling us he was telling us a true story or something farther in the past. We also have the challenge of the landmass. And I mentioned I'm going to use this 345 mile um, slope to the sea. And even with the lowered uh, sea levels, there's just not enough room in the Mediterranean for any of these Mediterranean locations to have been the capital city. Does that mean Crete wasn't Atlantis? Of course it does not mean that. It, this is where everyone else has kind of gotten to this and they say, well, it's not the capital, so it's not Atlantis. Maybe. Santorini is, which of course is, Santorini is ridiculously close to, uh, to Crete. Well, it's not. This is the, the dialogue. If we're, if we're literally taking Plato as true, and he tells us that there's a 3,000 stadia gently sloping plane to the sea that the city sat on, then we have to be able to find that, and we just can't find that at Crete. Having said that, I think there's still a really good chance that Crete was part of the Atlantean Kingdom, which means Crete is part of Atlantis, which means if he's looking at this, Crete might be part of Atlantis with a little a. As I was putting the images together for this video and going through my notes, I had forgotten, but I've highlighted it here. There are some very, very strange underwater formations to the south of Crete. They look to me exactly like the early LIDAR images we're getting out of the Amazon, where it's potentially something that in this case is under the seafloor, under silt, being submerged. The scope of it is substantial. That, the, the, the area I have highlighted is um, dozens and dozens of miles across. Also, when I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, this area is still underwater you have to lower the sea level by something like 400 meters to start to get this area above water. So I have no idea what it is, but it it is so regimentally laid out that it certainly does seem like something. So in our analysis, when we look at Crete, there's lots of evidence that it was probably a memory, it's probably all that was left of the Atlantean culture that also would have evolved because it was considerably earlier. And there are still unexplored and interesting anomalies in and around the island. So let's fire up the old Atlantis detector. Here, there's a lot of compelling information on Crete. I'm not going to try and go into it all. I don't want these videos to be an hour long. Uh, Crete is easy uh, to research and is very well documented with the Minoans. I pulled excerpts from two articles here, one from the University of Washington, one from uh, Cambridge University Press. The first one is just um, uh, an official academic statement establishing the Minoans 5,000 years ago and then replacing uh, the Neolithic Agrarian community, four thousand years before that, and then I pulled an article from Cambridge University that shows there's evidence maybe of even um, something before the the, the the agrarian culture that got replaced, right? The, <coughs> in the reoccupation. Um, that gets us that gets us back. So if you look at the gap, I'm trying to find percentages, and, and there's no easy way to do it, and and the percentage seems very accurate. Um, But it's it's more just a guide. And for us, I believe, if you look at all the compelling information they found on Crete, if you look at the Minoans and the ruins they have, and you look at that culture and all of the um, evidence around that culture, you look at the fact we know that Crete was uh, occupied for at least 130,000 years. We have the uh, agrarian Neolithic uh, population there. Uh, We can see that. So all in all, there's a 27% time gap. That that's that's all there is. We we have culturally, we have the anthropology, we have um, all of the artifacts. We can trace, arguably, the occupation, uh, a, a Neolithic occupation back to within a margin of error of Atlantis. That margin of error is basically twenty-seven percent. It's a big margin of error. I I get it, but all we have to do is solve that twenty-seven percent, and Crete fits the province of Atlantis almost perfectly. We also know that the Atlanteans had pushed into the Mediterranean, they were waging war. Crete is a very strategic location to do that against the Greeks. So if Crete's one of those provinces, it should be a name in the twins list. Now I've worked with a linguist And we've loosely identified some associations. I haven't finished the studying. So all I want to do now when we find a place that feels like it's a good candidate as a province of Atlantis, I want to identify the potential twin names, and we'll park those. And then when we get the whole thing figured out, then we'll go back and we'll dig into that linguistic um, and phonetic information and see how close of a match we can get. Here are the two names I like for Crete, and the Minoans are the Nisus and the Mester uh, twins. Both of those have a uh, linguistic and phonetic tie to the Minoans, and I think we can probably find some experts and see how close we can get to agreeing that those names linguistically come from this region. So I think it's really interesting when you really look at it that Crete aligning to the Atlantean Empire, the only piece of data we don't have is a 27% gap in the timeline. We can get all the way back using current academic understanding. We can get all the way back to 7,000 BC. We need to get back to 9,600 BC. The difference there, if you take the reciprocal of that 27% is 73. So we're gonna use that since everything else seems to line up. I'm going to say there's a 73% chance that Crete was one of the Atlantean provinces. There's a 0% chance it was the Atlantean capital. It doesn't fit any of the criteria um, that we established, and it can't stand up to our Atlantis detector of that 345 mile, gently sloping plain to the sea. Crete has a lot going for it, though. It has well documented ancient history. It's still a tourist site, so it's not only legitimate ancient history, but it's very well-studied ancient history. It has multiple forms of writing, some of which are still undeciphered, that suggest something going on in the past. It's a cultural fit for Atlantis, and it seems to culturally um, present, in a lot of the frescoes and murals that we can still see, uh, concepts that seem to resonate with the Atlantean ideals. It's a location known to be populated in 9600 BCE and actually well before that. And we have a date of 7000 BCE for an agricultural transformation. That time period, 7000 BCE, 9600 BCE, it's a long time, but the it's very hard to see that far back in the past. So those are approaching a margin of error. I'm not saying they're within a margin of error, but they are approaching a margin of error. So there's a a relatively small gap then between the mainstream academic view and the view that this was a province of Atlantis. We've identified uh, two twin names that should be studied as possible linguistic uh, or phonetic relationships with the Minoans. And we're gonna put Crete as a 73% chance of having been a province of Atlantis based upon our analysis. We will come back to that and we'll verify that because we're not gonna finish this series until, everything, until we've answered everything. Uh, but right now we're gonna park this to 73% positive chance. just gotten started on the location analysis, which is, of course, the interesting piece to this entire series. But in order to do this right, we had to have the context set, and some of the reactions I got to the first video suggested to me that I hadn't done a good enough job yet of explaining the methodology that we're following. So I'm going to do that in this video. I'm currently also working on the MALTA video. And that place is bonkers, um, so it's taking me a little longer than I thought it would to get it all together. So from a methodology standpoint, we're working towards a grand unified theory of Atlantis. And as I pointed out in some of the other videos, but I'll point out here, Atlantis is actually three things. This is very clear from the dialogues. It's a city, it's a continent, and it's a kingdom. In the look for Atlantis, we're often confronted with what we call the fool's choice. This goes along with Occam's razor. Occam's razor says that we wanna push away all the noise and that the most simple answer, the most obvious answer is probably the right answer. The fool's choice tells us that we don't want to find ourselves restricting our analysis, thinking that we have to make choices between A or B, when in fact, we can also consider A and B which is what we're doing, and that is clearly the foundational principle that's going to lead us to this grand unified theory of Atlantis. As I've said before, and I will continue to make the point, Atlantis is at least 10 places. We get this from the dialogue. So it's silly to think that the places that show signs of something going on in 9600 BC and show signs of an exotic culture it's almost like because we are finding more than one of them it's nullified our ability to correlate this these findings to the dialogues we're going to use this map and we're going to methodically look at each of these places and make an assessment we're going to decide if the place qualifies as a location that could be the capital city and if not we're going to see if it qualifies as a location that could be one of the Atlantean provinces. Once we've done that, we're going to look phonetically at the twins list to see if there's any hint or clue to the location's name. I'll give you an example. In the very first video, we looked at two twin names, Gnosis and Mester. Now, I don't want to jump ahead. I'm trying to be as methodical as I can, but that first one, M-N-E-S-E-U-S, phonetically is pronounced almost identical to K-N-O-S-S-O-S, Gnosis, which is the name of the Minoan capital on Crete. Interesting. We're not to that analysis yet, but this is the types of things that we're breaking apart with this methodology so that we can organize the whole thing and build both a physical and a linguistic case. So that's our goal, and that's why we're using this worksheet as we go through these videos, we we will record our analysis. And by the time we're done, and by the time we come back and look at the areas that we've identified gaps in, this worksheet is going to paint the entire picture of our Grand Unified Theory. So as we work to our Grand Unified Theory and we do our analysis, what I'm doing is we identify all of the criteria, and then if we can't meet any of the criteria, we attempt to convert that gap into a percentage. As I mentioned in the Crete video, but I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been, this isn't a perfect science. The percentage is going to look more precise than it actually is. It's more of a guide. But I wanted to convert it into something quantifiable so we can see when we're far apart and we can see when we're not. For example, with Crete, Everything lines up. We have the exotic culture, we have uh, the ruins, we have um, a landmass that would have been strategic, may have been mentioned, may not have been. We have to do that twins analysis. But the goal is always to get to a percentage. So in this case, we took the timeline of Atlantis, 9600 B.C. We took the timeline that um, modern archaeology gets us to on Crete, 7000 B.C., We looked at that gap of twenty six hundred years. We converted it into a percentage. How far far back we need to go versus how far back can we go? It's twenty seven percent. That is the only gap. That's the only gap. If if we are taking Plato's story as true, it is a twenty seven percent gap. So now, when we start to put all these places together, we'll be able to see how far or close apart we are. And what we're going to find, I believe, is that we're really not that far apart. That we've found enough, especially when we start to factor in Gobele Tepe, which I'll probably do a separate video on, that establishes the technology level, that establishes that advanced idea. So we know what we're looking for. We're looking for a Gobele Tepe somewhere. So we have it all. We'll, We'll quantify it. Once we lay it all out in that worksheet, then we'll see where we are. The other thing we're looking for, as I've mentioned, is the idea of Atlantis with a capital A and then Atlantis without the capital A. Now, I think to punctuate it, it's always going to have a capital A. But my point there is one of these ten Atlantises is going to be the capital. That's the one with the capital A. And all the others will be provinces. They're all still Atlantis, as as we've talked about, because Atlantis is three things. That's that's one of our themes. The last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing kind of a... It won't be the same piece of film, but I'm going to start doing a summary at the beginning of these videos. If you're following along, please don't get put off by that. I'm trying to keep these as um, concise uh, as possible, but we've got new people coming in. For example, one of the comments I got on one of the other videos was, what a shame it was that I didn't know what I was talking about because I'm not considering the dialogue. I clearly haven't read it. Well, of course, not only have I... we read it here together, but we have decomposed it. We've done a lot of work with it. But, but people don't know. They watch video number eight or nine. They don't go back and watch videos number one or two. So I'm going to start including that, that, that summary introduction, whatever you want to call it, just to keep people up to speed. It's probably the right thing to do, and I'm learning how to communicate this as much as I'm learning, just like you are, all those interesting things about Atlantis. So I'm working on Crete. As I said, that could be out by this weekend, um, and, uh, thank you for following along. And thank you for sticking with me.
1: Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks and ETFs all commission free. <laughs> Getting started is easy and you can invest in the companies you love for as little as $1 waiting on the right moment. Uninvested cash in your account earns a competitive interest rate. Get your first stock on us, download the app and take control of your financial future. I'm Captain Rudy Torrance. This
0: is an emergency. We've gone down. My passengers, my responsibility. Plane, on the plane. Is an amazing place and has long been associated with the Atlantean <laughs> legends. It's a small island located just south of the Tyrrhenian Sea in the Mediterranean. Now, the Tyrrhenian Sea is one of the only named locations listed in those two Platonic dialogues that we're working with Critias and Timaeus. It still matches its location today. It's a known place. It was known when Solon went to Egypt, and that name has held all the way through today. They also mention other places by name. They mention Europe, they mention Egypt, they mention Libya, they mention Asia, and they mention Greece. Those are very big names. The Tyrrhenian Sea is the only, it's the only body of water mentioned other than the Atlantic Ocean. On Malta, we can see that same agrarian uh, community, the same agrarian transformation that we saw on Crete, only on Malta it happens in 5200 BCE instead of 7000 BCE that's the currently held academic view However with Malta there's a big difference we have unparalleled energetic megalithic monuments and constructions there's over 25 monuments and temples it's very small it's not a very large landmass this is the highest density of these type of megalithic constructions anywhere in the world Of the many anomalies it has, it has the cart path anomaly. There are over 150 locations, just like the megalithic construction was the most energetic and most concentrated anywhere in the world. This is the highest density of these cart paths. These cart paths are, are bizarre. They are ruts worn into the limestone bedrock all over the island. And this is where we have a piece of evidence that's different from Crete. Crete has lots of mysteries, but that academic dating, that 7,000 BCE date, we don't have anything to counter that with, which is why it's only a 73% match instead of a 100% match. Everything else lines up. With Malta, because of these cart paths, we have a viable piece of physical evidence that is that has no date to it, yet hints at a much older date, than the 5,200 BCE through the agrarian community transformation. Malta has been continually occupied since that 5,200 BCE date. So that's over 7,000 years of occupation. And it's a relatively small island, and a relatively small set of islands, which means that many of the sites that have been lived on or built on have been lived on and built on and torn down and rebuilt dozens and dozens of times or more, which makes finding those bottom layers and those earlier dates all the more difficult. Another kind of magical thing happens to Malta when we lower the sea levels to reflect the 400 feet lower that they were during the last ice age. Malta becomes a strategic choke point in the Mediterranean. Ships entering or leaving Greece, trying to get to the broader ocean, the Strait of Gibraltar, would be forced through this narrow area. It's strategic for the Atlanteans because they can patrol a relatively small point of water, but yet control the flow of trade through the entire Mediterranean. So we're not going to be able to completely diagnose and line up Malta, do all the work we have to do in a single video. I think it's probably going to take two or three videos. So I've kind of laid out the initial introduction to Malta here in part one. What we're going to do now in part two is start to look at all of the unique features of all this Neolithic work that was done on Malta. Our second Malta video, I want to focus on projecting back into 9600 BCE and seeing if we can line up any evidence that pushes the occupation of Malta or that landmass that Malta is on when you lower the sea levels into that time period. Remembering that from a Malta standpoint, which would be the highest peak in this area, as far as they can go back is about 7,000 years find something to push that gap farther back in time so that it lines up more with our Atlantic story. So let's take a look at the line in the Timaeus dialogue that mentions the Tyrrhenian Sea, which is where we are with Malta. Well, we're just, Malta in all fairness is just to the south of what that landmass would have been. But it becomes the strategic kind of choke point for entrance in the Mediterranean Sea, if you're coming from uh, Libya or Egypt or Greece or anywhere in so farther into the Mediterranean. So here's what here's, here's what the statement says. It says, Atlantis was a great and wonderful empire which had ruled over the whole of the many islands and over parts of the continent. And furthermore, the men of Atlantis had subjected the parts of Libya within the columns of Heracles as far as Egypt, and of Europe as far as Tyreania. So this map with the red, that's a visual representation of of what I interpret those words to mean, because this is what it would look like, a coastal occupation of the entire Mediterranean, although when you get over to uh, the Egypt side, we know that they don't make it into Greece, according to this, because that's where the conflict starts. But while that's interesting, we're focused on Malta, and we want to see how Malta would play into, from a strategic and a tactical standpoint, if we're to believe the Platonic Dialogues are which members we've agreed to assume that as we go through our analysis here. So let's go back to our flood map and lower the water levels in the Mediterranean to 400 feet, which is the levels that they were at at the end of the last ice age in 9600. As I mentioned, something magical happens with Malta. You can see the light blue here, and I've circled it. These two peninsulas, or whatever you want to call them, become the strategic strongholds or the strategic choke points for the entire Mediterranean, because this is the only way in or out of basically the inner Mediterranean, where the Greeks and the Egyptians are, and where we know there's a lot going on in 9600 BCE. And I guess what I'll call the outer Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea at this point, which is, is the, that upper piece um, on the uh, western side. Uh, but yeah, all commerce would have to flow through this little strait that gets created uh, with these two additional landmasses around Malta. So if you look at this with our military eye, we can see there's actually one location right here that if you could control this narrow stretch of water, you could control all trade in and out of the Mediterranean, and you could, could control all extraneous trade with Egypt and Greece, which apparently were, and and better yet, based upon the level of technology we're talking about, we would expect to find in 9600 BCE, um, you could control this strait using the geography, with the technology available to you. Basically, uh, towers that you would build so you could have a good view, a good field of view into the water. And then some type of signal system involving fires um, can easily signal back and forth if there's uh, ships coming or going, or all kinds of military commands can be given um, with just a fire in line of sight. These. You don't marry the like of your life. You marry the
2: love of your life. And on your wedding day, you don't want to like the way you look. You want to love the way you look. And we're here to help with designers like Joseph and me, Calvin Klein, and way. Men's Warehouse. Love the way you look.
0: Purple's Gel Flex Grid gets around. It's in Purple's ultra-comfy mattresses and pillows, and even in the seat cushions. The grid goes everywhere you do. For pressure-relieving support that never sleeps, click the link to shop. These two locations, which are on nearly identical submerged land masses, one facing towards the strait. If, if I were arming this from a military standpoint, we'd have the one on the western side facing kind of out that way, and then we have the one on the eastern side facing in towards Greece and towards Athens. So I'm often asked where do we dig? Where do we look? These two circles that I've drawn this is where really we dig, and this is where we look. If we're taking the Platonic story. If we're taking the story we have, we know that two things happened at these locations. The first is that the Atlanteans came in and established their dominance, and the second is at some point the Greeks fought their way out. Well, that means at a minimum the southern and eastern landmass where Malta is should be the sign of some type of conflict, some type of ancient conflict. Yes, it's submerged, but it's a place we can go look because there is certainly some evidence in one of these two circles. So the easiest thing to do in our search to find some piece of data, some fact that we can use to extend that 5200 date farther back into the past, we would need to find signs of Neolithic construction in these submerged areas of these red circles. If we can find that, if we can find actual evidence of Neolithic constructions in these submerged areas, The only time that could have taken place would have been during the last ice age. The only time it could have taken place would have been 9,600 or before. It would be validating if we could find that. Because it would change in the geography of the area. It would change our understanding of that 5,200 date. That 5,200 date might be when people came to the peak that is now Malta. But these flatlands, these areas, if Plato is telling us the truth, if the platonic dialogues are true, we should find... Signs of occupation that are Neolithic, and we find exactly that, exactly that, exactly where it should be. We find Neolithic constructions exactly where it should be on the sunken landmass. If this were a strategic chokehold during 9600, and we're talking about a war between Atlanteans and people inside the Mediterranean, the Greeks, the Egyptians, we find something called the Sicilian Channel Monument. <laughs> it's the ruins of a megalithic construction. That, as I mentioned, is exactly where it needs to be to line up our version, the platonic version, of the history of this area. This is it. We did it. This is the smoking gun. You cannot have megalithic... Of feet below sea level. The only way you could have it is if the sea level was lowered. The last time the sea level was this low was 9600 BCE. This establishes the date we need for the Atlantean occupation of Malta. <laughs> I wanted this video to be quick and I just wanted to touch on something called the Malta cart ruts. And these are inexplicable ruts that look like they come from cartwheels where the cart would have run over the same bedrock for dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of years or longer, creating you know ruts, usage ruts. The challenge with the cart ruts is some of them actually fit that criteria. Others don't fit that criteria at all. They're they're different sizes. They don't remain consistent um, to the width of the wheels. And they would actually be detrimental to trying to get a cart through. What's incredibly interesting is these cart paths, there's over 150 locations on Malta. It's the highest density of these types of markings on the ground in the world. And they go right into the, the limestone bedrock. But what's really interesting is that many of them run straight off of cliffs or they run straight into water well no one's driving carts underwater so if are cart tracks if are car tracks that go from the land to the water the only explanation is that the land that is now underwater that they go to was above water when they went there there's also confusion since some of the car tracks Look like they could come from carts, and others clearly don't. It turns out there's another um, mode of transportation out there that Native Americans used to use, where they used, they drug stuff behind a horse with like two sticks, which would also create these types of tracks. Oh. This is a newspaper, and this is Newsbreak, the nation's leading local news app. The newspaper is made of, well, paper. And by the time someone accidentally throws it in your bushes, all the news inside it is already old.
1: Can your newspaper tell you about the important?
0: So we're not here to debate cart track philosophy or tools or, or whatever. This is where we're keeping it simple. This is unique to our approach. We don't really need to know what made the tracks. We just need to know that the tracks were made at a time when a lot of the land that is currently underwater was above water. These tracks lead substantially into the water. They go down as much as 40 meters. So what we care about for these tracks is the fact that just like the Sicilian channel monolith, these tracks are physical evidence of a society at least as advanced as North American Indians living living on Malta when the land that is currently underwater was above water. That's our takeaway. Our takeaway is we have physical evidence in the Sicilian channel and in these tracks that the land that was underwater after 9600 BCE was used by people before it was underwater. So this is from the Journal of Archaeological Science, the September 15th edition, pages 398 to 407. It's an examination by a local <laughs> university of this underwater monolith. First thing they conclude is that it's 12 meters long, and it's at a depth of 40 meters, and it sits right on that group of land, that land mass, <laughs> it would have been above water at ninety-six hundred feet. B.C.E. and the water afternoon 600 B.C.E. You can see their picture of it here, and you can see there's other interesting monolith but you can see their picture here, which is the important piece. They also concluded, based upon petrographic analysis and other tests of the monolith, that it is absolutely 100% man-made. They concluded the same thing we did that the location of this monolith suggests significant human activity on this former Sicilian island, or the landmass that we've identified as being above water before 9600 BCE. And these academics in 2015 independently reached the exact same conclusion that we did when we did our own analysis. They concluded that at 9600 BCE, or what they have here, 9,350 plus or minus 200 years, which is 9,550 BCE. So basically, at the same time we find the evidence that we've been talking about, uh, um, this area being populated before it was above water, and then they have a date, rough date, on when it went underwater. Same conclusion we have about the date, around the implications of the date and around this monolith in general. I bring this up to raise awareness of the point. That video that I put out has already received criticisms from people who claim that it's not supported academically. Well, it is supported academically. Matter of fact, it is the academic view of that monolith. We are always forced to deal with misinformation. And I wanted to lay this out for you around this one because this next one that we're going to talk about has this same level of confusion around it but we haven't had academics yet go in to do any analysis. I also want to just show you how difficult it is to work with the methodology that academics use. So in one of the videos I mentioned that the occupation of Malta dated to 5200 BCE. In 2018, some researchers at Queen's University in Belfast found some evidence, DNA evidence, that pushed that date from 5200 to 5900 BC. So when I did my research, I had found a reference from before 2018, and now the reference is after 2018, that date has been adjusted. But that was just four years ago. We added 700 years to our date of the four years ago. That means if we'd had this conversation, let's say, Eight years ago. And we were arguing that we have we we believe Malta goes back past fifty two hundred. We would have been called a, a pseudo philosophical scientist, whatever kook. Now they found it, now the date's fifty-nine hundred. These dates are not written in stone like they tell us. These dates are very fluid. So I'm mentioning all of this kind of a little mini rant, because this next location I'm going to introduce as evidence has baggage, but it's, it's, it's this weird, pseudo-philosophical, pseudo-negative, not-real baggage. But so, and I'm not going to try and say this word, by the way, that, that G with the little dot on top of it, it's pronounced like, like a heartache. I can't say it. I'll sound ridiculous if I try it, because it's in here twice, and I, I just stumble over it. But this is a temple uh, that is a couple miles north of Malta. It is submerged, it is down at that level that we're interested in because it's on this landmass that wasn't above water before, like 9600 BCE, before the last ice age. It was, it was above water before the last ice age, and it went below water after the last ice age. So if there's any construction on it, it had to take place when it was above water. If we're not diligent in the way we research this, if we just go to, say, Wikipedia, Here's the Wikipedia page on this, and the first thing it says, it says that this is an alleged megalithic temple located underwater off the coast of Malta. Alleged. Alleged. Why is that word there? Alleged. Let's see if we can figure that out. Okay, well this is interesting. When we go to the analysis section of the page, it says that Maltese archaeologists are not convinced that the site is a megalithic temple, and it has a reference number with the number 9 by it. If I were just casually reading this, it would—I would think that there's a reference, an academic reference, that suggests that Maltese archaeologists are not convinced that this is an underwater temple, and then I would be suspicious of everything I hear about it. As a matter of fact, B.C.E. E. instead of Story of, of Atlantis. E. What's interesting about Crete, though, is that its established uh, academic knowledge is mainstream. The mainstream view is that it has been habitated by people for 130,000 years. And I showed you the Mediterranean around Crete with the sea level lowered 400 feet, which would be the level of the last ice age. There's no land bridge to Crete. You're not getting there by walking. You're getting there by boat. So 130,000 years ago, there were people on Crete. The only implication of that, not the only one, a major implication of that is that if there were people there, they had to have gotten there by boat. They didn't swim. It's too far to swim. The other interesting thing is on Crete, we see a Neolithic farming culture, and it's firmly established as far back as 7,000 B.C.E. There's also evidence of an earlier culture that that farming culture replaced, and then around 3,000 B.C.E., we see the Minoans. We see that culture come into that Neolithic farming culture on Crete. So continuous occupation, we can look back and see these... Cultures. The other interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about the Minoans is there's two sets of scripts, what they call Minoan script and also Linear A, which are both, uh, they believe, uh, the uh, procedures of Linear B. Linear B has been deciphered. Minoan script and Linear A still have not been deciphered. So we have writing uh, that we find on Crete that we cannot read and dates far back into the past before any known other writing. We also know that um, Crete has been occupied for at least 130,000 years. When we look at it, there's clearly a bull culture. There is something exotic about the culture that we see on Crete. It's a high culture and it seems very mature. There are well-documented ruins there. The climate in 9600 BCE was a good climate just like it is today. And Crete is accessible via the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, which was one of our criteria. However, there are some real problems with Crete being the Atlantean capital. It's really too close to the world that Plato knew. It's too close to Egypt. It's not outside the Strait of Gibraltar. There's some arguments that there are other straits that could be interpreted as the Strait of Heracles. But Crete, it's actually part of Greece, and geographically, it's so close. Plato would have known about it, and he wouldn't have told us, uh, he wouldn't have used Crete he wouldn't have described Crete to us while telling us he was telling us a true story or something farther in the past. We also have the challenge of the landmass. And I mentioned I'm going to use this 345 mile um, slope to the sea. And even with the lowered uh, sea levels, there's just not enough room in the Mediterranean for any of these Mediterranean locations to have been the capital city. Does that mean Crete wasn't Atlantis? Of course it does not mean that. It, this is where everyone else has kind of gotten to this, and they say, well, it's not the capital, so it's not Atlantis. Maybe Santorini is, which, of course, is, Santorini is ridiculously close to, um, to Crete. Well, it's not. This is, the, the dialogue, if we're literally taking Plato, is true, and he tells us that there's a 3,000 stadia gently sloping plane to the sea that the city sat on, then we have to be able to find that. And we just can't find that at Crete. Having said that, I think there's still a really good chance that Crete was part of the Atlantean Kingdom, which means Crete is part of Atlantis, which means if we keep looking at this, Crete might be part of Atlantis with a little a. As I was putting the images together for this video and going through my notes, I had forgotten, but I've highlighted it here there is some very very strange underwater formations to the south of Crete. They look to me exactly like the early lidar images we're getting out of the Amazon where it's potentially something that in this case is under the seafloor under silt it's been submerged. The scope of it is substantial that the, the The area I have highlighted is um, dozens and dozens of miles across. Also, when I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, this area is still underwater. You have to lower the sea level by something like 400 meters to start to get this area above water. So I have no idea what it is, but it, it is so regimentally laid out that it certainly does seem like something. So in our analysis, when we look at Crete, there's lots of evidence that it was probably a memory. Or it's probably all that was left of the ancient culture that also would have evolved because it was considerably earlier. And there are still unexplored and interesting anomalies in and around the island. So let's fire up the old Atlantis detector. Here, there's a lot of compelling information on Crete. I'm not going to try and go into it all. I don't want these videos to be an hour long. Uh, Crete is easy uh, to research and is very well documented with the Minoans. I pulled excerpts from two articles here, one from the University of Washington, one from uh, Cambridge University Press. The first one is just um, uh, an official academic statement establishing the Minoans 5,000 years ago and then replacing uh, the Neolithic uh, agrarian community 4,000 years before that. And then I pulled an article from Cambridge University that shows there's evidence maybe of even um, something before the the, uh, the agrarian culture that got replaced, right, the Neolithic reoccupation. Um, that gets us... That gets us back. So if you look at the gap, I'm trying to find percentages. And, and there's no easy way to do it. And, and the percentage seems very accurate. Um, but it's, it's more just a guide. And for us, I believe, if you look at all the compelling information they found on Crete, if you look at the Minoans and the ruins they have, and you look at that culture and all of the um, evidence around that culture, you look at the fact we know that Crete was uh, occupied for at least 130,000 years. We have the uh, agrarian Neolithic uh, population there, uh, we can see that. So all in all, there's a 27% time gap. That that's, that's all there is. We we have culturally, we have the anthropology, we have um, all of the artifacts. We can trace, arguably, the occupation, uh, a, a Neolithic occupation back to within a margin of error of Atlantis. That margin of error is basically 27%. It's a big margin of error. I I get it. But all we have to do is solve that 27%, and Crete fits the province of Atlantis almost perfectly. We also know that the Atlanteans had pushed into the Mediterranean. They were waging war. Crete is a very strategic location to do that against the Greeks. So if Crete's one of those provinces, it should be a name in the twins list. Now I've worked with a linguist and we've loosely identified some associations. I haven't finished the studying. So all I wanna do now when we find a place that feels like it's a good candidate as a province of Atlantis, I wanna identify the potential twin names and we'll park those. And then when we get the whole thing figured out, then we'll go back and we'll dig into that linguistic um, and phonetic information and see how close of a match we can get. Here the two names I like for Crete and the Minoans are the Nisus and the Mester uh, twins. Both of those have a uh, linguistic and phonetic tie to the Minoans. And I think we can probably find some experts and see how close we can get to agreeing that those names linguistically come from this region. So I think it's really interesting when you really look at it that Crete aligning to the Atlantean Empire, the only piece of data we don't have is a 27% gap in the timeline. We can get all the way back using current academic understanding. We can get all the way back to 7,000 BC, we need to get back to 96. The difference there, if you take the reciprocal of that 27%, is 73 So we're going to use that since everything else seems to line up. I'm going to say there's a 73% chance that Crete was one of the Atlantean provinces. There's a 0% chance it was the Atlantean capital. It doesn't fit any of the criteria um, that we established, and it can't stand up to our Atlantis detector of that 345-mile gently sloping plane to the sea. Crete has a lot going for it, though. It has well-documented ancient history. It's still a tourist site, so it's not only legitimate ancient history, but it's very well-studied ancient history. It has multiple forms of writing, some of which are still undeciphered, that suggest something going on in the past. It's a cultural fit for Atlantis, and it seems to culturally... Um, present in a lot of the frescoes and murals that we can still see, concepts that seem to resonate with the Atlantean ideals. It's a location known to be populated in 9600 BCE and actually well before that. And we have a date of 7000 BCE, an agricultural transformation. That time period, 7000 BCE, 9600 BCE, it's a long time, but the... It's very hard to see that far back in the past. So those who are approaching a margin of error, I'm not saying they're within a margin of error, but they are approaching a margin of error. So there's a relatively small gap then between the mainstream academic view and the view that this was a province of Atlantis. We've identified uh, two twin names that should be studied as possible linguistic uh, or phonetic relationships with the Minoans. And we're going to put C as a 73% chance of having been a province of Atlantis based upon our analysis. We will come back to that, and we'll verify that because we're not going to finish this series until everything, until we've answered everything. Uh, so right now, we're going to park this to 73% positive chance. I know we've just gotten started on the location analysis, which is, of course, the interesting piece to this entire series, but in order to do this right, we have to have the context set. And Some of the reactions I got to the first video suggested to me that I hadn't done a good enough job yet of explaining the methodology that we're following. So I'm going to do that in this video. I'm currently also working on the MALTA video that place is bonkers, Um, so it's taking me a little longer than I thought it would to get it all together. So from a methodology standpoint, we're working towards a grand unified theory of Atlantis. And as i pointed out in some of the other videos, but I'll point out here, Atlantis is actually three things. This is very clear from the dialogues. It's a city, it's a continent, and it's a kingdom. In the look for Atlantis, we're often confronted with what we call the fool's choice. This goes along with ockham's razor. ockham's razor says that we want to push away all the noise and that the most simple answer, the most obvious answer, is probably the right answer. The fool's choice tells us that we don't want to find ourselves restricting our analysis, thinking that we have to make choices between A or B, when in fact we can also consider A and B. Which is what we're doing, and that is clearly the foundational principle that's going to lead us to this grand unified theory of Atlantis. As I've said before, and I will continue to make the point, Atlantis is at least 10 places. We get this from the dialogue. So it's silly to think that the places that show signs of something going on in 9600 BC and show signs of an exotic culture. It's almost like because we are finding more than one of them, it's nullified our ability to correlate this, these findings, to the dialogue. We're going to use this map, and we're going to methodically look at each of these places and make an assessment. We're going to decide if the place qualifies as a location that could be the capital city, and if not, we're going to see if it qualifies as a location that could be one of the Atlantean provinces. Once we've done that, we're going to look phonetically at the twins list to see if there's any hint or clue to the location's name. I'll give you an example. In the very first video, we looked at two twin names, Gnosis and Mester. Now, I don't want to jump ahead, I'm trying to be as methodical as I can, but that first one, M-N-E-S-D-U-S, phonetically is pronounced almost identical to K-N-O-S-S-O-S, Gnosis, which is the name of the Minoan capital on Crete. Interesting. We're not to that analysis yet, but this is the types of things that we're breaking apart with this methodology so that we can organize the whole thing and build both a physical and a linguistic case. So that's our goal, and that's why we're using this worksheet as we go through these videos, we, we will record our analysis. And by the time we're done, and by the time we come back and look at the areas that we've identified gaps in, this worksheet is going to paint the entire picture of our Grand Unified Theory. So as we work to our Grand Unified Theory and we do our analysis, what I'm doing is we identify all of the criteria, and then if we can't meet any of the criteria, we attempt to convert that gap into a percentage. As I mentioned in the Crete video, but I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been, this isn't a perfect science. The percentage is going to look more precise than it actually is. It's more of a guide. But I wanted to convert it into something quantifiable so we can see when we're far apart and we can see when we're not. For example, with Crete, Everything lines up. We have the exotic culture, we have uh, the ruins, we have um, a landmass that would have been strategic, may have been mentioned, may not have been. We have to do that twins analysis. But the goal is always to get to a percentage. So in this case, we took the timeline of Atlantis, 9600 BC. We took the timeline that um, modern archaeology gets us to on Crete, 7000 BC. We looked at that gap of 2600 years we converted it into a percentage how far you know how far back we need to go versus how far back can we go it's 27 percent. that is the only gap that's the only gap if if we are taking plato's story as true and it's a 27 percent gap so now when we start to put all these places together we'll be able to see how far or close apart we are and what we're going to find i believe is that we're really not that far apart that Sound found enough, especially when we start to factor in Lake Tepe, which I'll probably do a separate video on, that establishes the technology level, that establishes that advanced idea. So we know what we're looking for, looking for a Lake Tepe somewhere. So we have it all. We'll, we'll quantify it. Once we lay it all out in that worksheet, then we'll see where we are. The other thing we're looking for, as I've mentioned, is the idea of Atlantis with a capital A and then Atlantis without the capital A. Now, I think to punctuate it, it's always going to have a capital A, but my point there is one of these ten Atlantises is going to be the capital. That's the one with the capital A. And the, all the others will be provinces. They're all still Atlantis, as, as we've talked about, because Atlantis is three things. That's, that's one of our themes. The last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing kind of a, it won't be the same piece of film, but I'm going to start doing a summary at the beginning of these videos. If you're following along, please don't get put off by that. I'm trying to keep these as um, concise uh, as possible, but we've got new people coming in. For example, one of the comments I got on one of the other videos was, what a shame it was that I didn't know what I was talking about because I was not considering the dialogue. I clearly haven't read it. Well, of course, not only have have We read it here together, but we have decomposed it. We've done a lot of work with it, but but people don't know. They watch video number eight or nine. They don't go back and watch videos number one or two. So I'm gonna start including that that summary introduction, whatever you wanna call it, just to keep people up to speed. It's probably the right thing to do. And I'm learning how to communicate this as much as I'm learning, just like you are, all those interesting things about Atlantis. So I'm working on Crete. As I said, that should be out by this weekend. Um, and uh, thank you for following along, and thank you for sticking with me. or something that can be blocked in a meaningful and reasonable way. The earth has
2: fallen away all round and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison of what then was, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body as they may be called, as in the case of small islands, all the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away, and the mere skeleton of the land being left.
0: I've included this one. You've probably never heard that line from the prettiest Dialogue before is not specifically speaking about the capital city. Instead, this is a portion of the dialogue where the characters are trying to explain the magnitude of the destruction and the danger uh, or the catastrophe that happened. But I think it's a very descriptive line that can help us as a nice to have. We can't use it as a primary requirement, but if we find locations for the capital city that also show signs of devastation, that will help. So there it is. There are 12 core requirements for a location to match what Plato tells us about the Atlantean capital city. It's fascinating that there's only 12, Now, obviously, the capital city is going to have to sit on a landmass that matches the continent, and it's going to have to also meet the requirements of the kingdom. These are requirements that we have to now still derive from the dialogues. But in all of the dialogues, in all of the thousands of years of people looking for Atlantis, the capital city, these are the only 12 clues that we have. document in the Platonic Dialogues, Timaeus and Critias, and we're dealing with translations sometimes that are hundreds of years old. The definition of words can drift and can be imprecise. We have to carefully define the terms that we use and make sure that we're not carrying unwarranted biases into our assumptions about those words. Since this video is about the Atlantean continent, one of the first things we have to define is what a continent is. There is no strict definition for what a continent is. It turns out a continent is defined by convention rather than any strict criteria. A continent is just a large, continuous mass of land. also considered a region. It's a contrivance, a convention. This means when we consider the Atlantean continent, we have to understand that it's not as precise a definition as we would like, and it's more of a convention. In addition to the specific meanings of words, we also must make sure that we're considering the geography, and the climate of the time of the tale. As we spoke, that's about 9600 BCE is when Plato tells us that Atlantis was destroyed. If you remember, one of our going-in assumptions is that the pieces of information that Plato tells us are true, are historically true, we're going to assume they are, so we're going to assume that he's right, If the dates 9600. now that we've cleaned up continent, we have to tackle one more word that's part of all the translations that we're dealing with. When we look at the island of Atlantis in Greek, ancient Greek, this is what we see. Atlantis, Nisos, that's how you say that, Nisos. Well, Nisos doesn't simply translate as island. That's how it's translated. And at first I thought this was a lazy translation, but when you look at kind of the rules and the methodology for translating from one language to another, you do try and be precise and you try and have the translation fit into the, the style of language that you're going to, in this case English. So Island's not a terrible translation sometimes, but without the context of what's being translated. Is not always the best translation. Turns out when you research this word, nisos, it has an uncertain origin. Traditionally, it's associated with the idea of swimming or I swim. It's associated with a piece of land, um, a headland, promontory, cape, island, or promontory. I don't know, a headland, promontory, cape, island, peninsula. Basically, if you look at the last one, it's derived from the idea of nose. So think about this, it's, we have two dimensions. We'll say the first dimension is the person's lying flat on their back. Their nose is up in the air, right? So if you remember the beginning of Gilligan's Island, we see an island, and well, that's like someone's nose sticking up out of the water. So we have that view, but it's not two-dimensional. We can have the three-dimensional view or the side view, if you look at a person's profile, and their nose is sticking out, that could be a peninsula, it could be a promontory, it could be a headland, it could be a cape, it could be an island, it could be whatever. So now when we go back to that quote, there was an island situated in the front of the strait, which are by you called the Pillars of Heracles. So this passage comes to, there was a point of high land that juts out into a large body of water you have to swim to. Situated in front of the straits, which you are, which are you by it called, or Heracles, sorry. Now, you have to swim to is interesting because if you dig even deeper into the roots of the word, later on, it also meant that it required a big boat to get to. So the root of the word is based on you have to swim to it, that's very rudimentary. Later on, that same translation evolved from having to swim to. you need a big boat to get to it. all makes sense. And all can accurately be an island, but an island is a very constrictive definition, and we need to make sure that we go in with our eyes wide open. All right, so here, the island or the continent was larger than Libya and Asia together. Basically, when the Greeks are talking about Asia, they're basically talking about Asia Minor, or mostly Turkey. That's where the Persians lived. That was what they had to deal with. So when you look, and Libya wasn't quite as far into Africa, but it was more of the coast towards uh, Morocco and towards the Atlas Mountains from Egypt. But you can measure this lots of different ways. There's no way to be super precise, but when you get the square mileage of Asia Minor and Libya, it comes in just a hair under a million square miles. So we're going to use that designation if something is larger than whatever they're talking about here we're going to say it has to be larger than one million square miles which is a pretty good interpretation and, uh, and, and uh, quantification of this requirement the men of atlantis has subjected the parts of libya within the columns of heracles as far as egypt and of europe as far as titrania as a requirement this means that The continent of Atlantis has to be geographically related to these places. It has to be close enough to Libya and Egypt and Greece and Europe to make sense, to make socioeconomic sense to wage war in those areas. Making every variety of food to spring up abundantly from the soil. This is just basically telling us that, and he talks a lot about. There's a lot of hints about agriculture. Um, in fact, there's a lot of dimensions given about the agriculture that we'll get to. But this is telling us that the continent of Atlantis was had a rich, fertile soil and had a good climate. And he named them all. The eldest, who was the first king, he named Atlas, and after him, the whole island and the ocean were called Atlantic. So that means the continent has to have some relationship to the Atlantic Ocean, and it should have some relationship to the name Atlas. They dug out of the earth whatever was to be found there, solid as well as fusile, and that which is now only a name, and was then something more than a name, or calcum was dug out of the earth in many parts. The continent should be rich in mineable mineral resources. <laughs> fusile simply means smelting formed by casting or melting, easily fused, like bronze. Bronze is a, uh, a fusile metal. It doesn't, you don't have to get it that hot to melt it and do things with it. So that's what they're telling us about for a too. <laughs> there were a great number of elephants on the island. So, here when we're looking for the continent, there should be some associations with elephants. And there should be association with elephants in enough abundance to be worth mentioning. They dug a canal around the whole of the plain that was 10,000 stadia in length. So, this is talking about the agriculture, agricultural prowess, and it's talking about the plain where they grew stuff. Uh, it also tells us in another uh, section, that I didn't include here, but it's really part of this one, I probably should have, that there were 60,000 10 by 10 stadia farms. That was the bulk of the population, the agrarian population. They go into lots of detail around what the farms did and how they fit into society. But for us, the thousand, I'm 60,000 uh, 10 stadia by 10 stadia farms have to then be on a plane, and the plane itself has to be able to support a canal that they had dug all the way around, a ditch, they had dug all the way around it, that measured in total 10,000 stadia in length. starting to get asked questions, which I appreciate. I like questions. One of the questions I've gotten a couple times is where do I think these videos are headed? What's the end game? Sometimes those questions come along with, well, just tell me the answer. And of course, we can't do that. We have to methodically work our way through the details, define the requirements, do the analysis, and reach a conclusion. But I still do know what we're building towards. We're building towards a grand, unified theory of Atlantis in the same way that Henrik Sleemann was able to come up with a grand, unifying theory of Troy. I view them as parallels. When we're finished, we will have meticulously and scientifically examined all of the primary sources and done groundbreaking analysis of the different possible locations. But don't worry, I'm not gonna leave you hanging. There's an answer. It's an elegant answer and once presented, it's an obvious answer. The first additional requirement is that as we do our location analysis, we have to be sure that we are looking at that location through a lens that includes the time of the tail. Plato tells us Atlantis was destroyed in 9600 BCE. So for each location we look at as we evaluate it, we have to understand what was going on in 9600 BCE. He also tells us that the way to Atlantis was the way to the opposite continent. I think this is a groundbreaking and revolutionary statement. It tells us that in 3000 BCE, when the Atlantean myth was chiseled into the Temple of Neith at Saïs, it included the knowledge of an opposite continent. That right there is historic. And if we use my assumption to believe Plato, it's groundbreaking. I believe it's reasonable to ask, since there is an opposite continent, what the implications would be to dismissing that statement. So we will look at the way to the opposite continent as part of our analysis of both the kingdom and the Plato also tells us that it was accessible via the Atlantic Ocean, so any of the provinces, the kingdom of Atlantis, they all must be accessible via the Atlantic Ocean. Doesn't mean they have to be in the Atlantic Ocean or on it, but as you moved around the kingdom and you moved through the Atlantic, that has to be the way to these places. It should include agricultural prowess. This is a long time in the past, over 11,000 years ago. But when we look at the location and the time and everything else, we should see, if nothing else, the potential with a massive farming with We'll also use the twin list, which has names in it, to see if we can phonetically or linguistically locate the names of any of the multiple provinces. And some of those provinces should be diving islands, whatever that is, but is what Plato tells us about. So let's dig into 9600 BCE. Some of this will be location dependent, so we can't do all of our analysis until we have picked a location to analyze. But generally speaking on the planet, 9600 BCE equates to the end of the last ice age and the end of what's called the Younger Dryas event. Now what's interesting is there were actually three dryases, the Younger Dryas, the Older Dryas, and the Oldest Dryas. One of the first things I had to find out, because I didn't know, was, what's a dryas. Well, it turns out it's a type of flowering plant that does really well at higher elevations in colder weather. Interestingly, the dryas is also named after the Greek dryads, the nymphs from ancient Greek mythology, which is, I believe, a completely tangential coincidence, but it's also interesting that, some, that the name from ancient Greek mythology is what we use in current academics to denote the end of the last ice age, which ties to the end of Atlantis. And we get the Atlantis story through a different set of ancient Greek documents. I just find that interesting. At this time, the world was in in the Neolithic period. Neolithic just means new, neo and lithic. Stone age, new stone age or lithic, means more relating to stones so something new about stones this particular period in the mediterranean region is also associated with what they call the pre-pottery neolithic which is just simply means what it says it's it's the neolithic period before people figured out that you could cook dirt get dirt wet and cook it and make pots out of it so all their tools and all their pots and everything were made out of stone the other thing that is really interesting about this time period is that we are involved in what they call the first agricultural revolution. Exactly at this time period. Plato tells us the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture, and historically, the mainstream view is that 9600 BCE was in, we are in the first agricultural revolution. Interesting. We're going to examine the twin names when we're looking for the kingdom of Atlantis, if we find a location that seems to exhibit evidence of something going on in 9600 BCE, but we can't line it up to the Atlantian capital we have all the information on, the next step will be to look at these names and do phonetic and linguistic analysis to see if there's a location that fits as a province. One of the last things to clean up as we finish our requirements gathering phase is this idea of Atlantis being advanced, advanced technology, advanced something. So how does that concept of advanced, given what Plato says in the dialogues, fit into the views of traditional historians? That's the question we have to answer. Specifically, we're talking about agricultural and maybe they're advanced in agriculture. Plato spends time talking about how they've organized themselves. So they seem to be advanced organizationally. He talks about a lot of agricultural prowess. He mentions 60,000 10 by 10 stadia farms. We'll do another video on what a stadia is. Just know 10 stadia is about a mile. So those would be 60,000 one-mile square farm plots. But it also tells us the Atlanteans were very good at controlling the flow of water. They dug a massive irrigation ditch. One of their ditches was 10,000 stadia. That's a lot. That's a lot of ditch. And the last thing, I don't know how we can use this in analysis, but it's one of the last things I pulled out when it came to the word advanced is that whatever else was going on, the Atlanteans were not very good at war. While they were able to conquer Libya and Egypt and parts of Europe, they couldn't beat the Greeks. And in 9600 BCE, these aren't the Greeks that we think of when we see movies and TV shows. These are basically proto-Greeks. So very early civilizations were able to beat the Atlanteans. So the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture, they're probably advanced, they seem to be advanced in how they structured their society, but they were not overly advanced at war. That wasn't, that doesn't seem to be what they were good at. And those three statements are all supported by the Platonic dialogue. Thank you for sticking with me through the requirements analysis. I know it was a little tedious and we're wading through waters that other people have been through already. But I think it's important for us to take a clean look at this and to have done the analysis ourselves as opposed to us picking a source and using a third party to tell us what the dialogues say. Instead, we just went through them and we've now derived our own list uh, firsthand the primary source. So the question becomes, where do we look? I think it would be naive to ignore all of the locations that people have identified as having characteristics that lead some people to believe that location is the lost, I guess, lost city. That seems to be what they look for. They tend to look for the city. So I've collected a list of 12 places that seem to be the ones that are most popular as locations for Atlantis. If you notice a location up here that would fit on this map somewhere that I don't have, please let me know. It's going to take a while to get through all of these and do the analysis. So there's plenty of time to add an additional location or two in as we go through this. We're going to start with the ones that are closest to Greece, Santorini, Crete, and Malta. Then we'll move out into um, the ones that are closest to the Strait of Gibraltar. So Cadiz, uh, the Sioux Mesa, the Rishas, the Canary Islands, and the Azores. And then we'll look at the ones that are probably too far away to be the capital city. So these would be candidates for some of those provinces that we talked about ruled by the sets of twins. Well, they're not not ruled in sets of twins, but they're ruled by twins who were born in sets because they're twins. And that's Doggerland, Antarctica, Bimini, and Aslan, I know Aslan is actually farther west, but it was hard to, to land on the size of the map that allowed us to see that these. If you notice something missing, please let me know. There's plenty of time to add it in. I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to test the seafaring navigation routes that we can project back into this time period. I've looked at the generic trade routes as they emerge through the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, and I'll show you a genericized version of those. First, though, I wanted to see if I could find the first time, and the only first time I could find is Columbus. Now, I know we can argue that Columbus didn't, isn't the first seafarer to discover North America, but I'm not arguing that. I just want to see for someone who didn't know how to get there but was using all the information they could gather, what routes did they take? One of the things that people tend to forget is Columbus sailed to the New World four different times. So here we can look at the way he went each time. And what happens is as he learns the tides and he learns the currents and he learns how to get there, he continues to make his route farther south. Which I think we can use to denote the zones that we're looking for of an Atlantean empire. We're told the capital city is directly outside of the Strait, the Strait of Heracles which we interpret as the Strait of Gibraltar. So directly is an ambiguous term but it's not a completely meaningless term. I've drawn three zones here that we can use to interpret that word directly, with obviously zone one being the most directly, zone two kind of directly, and zone three arguably directly. So, I think the locations that line up in these zones are the ones that we will at least start with our analysis of the capital city, trying to find that. You know, another important point is that this isn't a game of winners and losers. So we don't have this idea of someone's going to win if the place they think is atlantis is also the location of the capital city atlantis is a big word it was a big kingdom and it can mean a lot of things there's no reason to believe that the provinces that plato mentions were any less advanced whatever advanced means um than the capital city was we just have to start putting some milestones down some markers down so that we can figure out exactly what he's talking about because if we can find the capital if that exists then it's reasonable to assume that those provinces exist and if the provinces exist and the capital exists and we found stuff at all these locations that points back to atlantis then all of these locations are in the kingdom of atlantis and they're one of those named provinces in the twins list we just have to figure all this out so that's how we're going to go about organizing all of these locations that we look at i'm excited to get started i hope you are too first up Let's do Crete. What we're working towards is called a grand unified theory of Atlantis. One of the items we have to overcome as we examine all the different potential locations, is what is called the fool's choice. The fool's choice is when you are presented with a question and believe that the answer is selecting one of many possibilities. It's called the fool's choice because in the answer, you believe that you cannot consider all of the potential answers, all the possibilities, but then you have to pick one. If you remember, this was exactly the type of thinking, the fool's choice, that we came up against when we were doing our Critias analysis. And for thousands of years, scholars have been forcing a fool's choice when it comes to identifying which Critias is speaking. People have tried to assume it's either Critias the grandfather or Critias the tyrant. The answer, of course, is that it one dialogue is one of them, and the other dialogue is the other of them. That was a fool's choice, and we've all fallen for it. So I'm going to introduce here in our grand unified theory of Atlantis, the critius Clause. And the critius Clause is basically how we're going to combat that fool's choice. Basically, when confronted with a choice between A or B, we are also going to consider A and B. It might seem obvious to do this, but if you think about it, If you enter into any conversation with someone who has passion for Atlantis, what's going to happen is they're going to think it's location A. If you don't agree with them, you think it's location B, you will then argue because the belief is it can only be location A or location B. Atlantis (coughs) was three things. It was a city, a continent, a kingdom. So, so why do we insist on trying to find Atlantis? What, what do we even mean when we say that word Atlantis? Usually what I hear is they're applying the concept of the continent and kingdom to the city. It's a really weird way of looking at things. Atlantis is at least ten different places. We know that. It's a, it's a capital city in nine provinces, 10, ten locations total. So when we look for Atlantis, we're going to try and identify whether it was a capital city or one of the provinces. The other thing I realized we need to clean up is the unit of measure that's being used in the dialogue. It's this thing called a stadia. There is some arguable confusion. Yeah, that's not the right word. You can choose a couple different values for a stadia depending on how you decide to ground the dialogue. We're gonna ground the dialogue along its common sense and, and obvious nature. Meaning Plato wrote during a time when the Greek stadia was six hundred and six point nine feet, when it was six hundred and seven feet. This became the what they call the Alexandrian measure from Alexander the Great. Both Plato and Alexander the Great lived at the same time. Plato was a lot older, Alexander was a lot younger, but they think they had twelve years of overlap. And then this measurement of a stadia went on through Roman times to kind of hold it at 607 feet. So that's what we're going to use here. So the first unit of measure we need to convert is a tool that we're going to use to identify all these different locations, whether it's a candidate for the capital city or a candidate for one of the provinces. And there was a line that I presented in one of the earlier videos that is very rarely used, but I think it's the perfect benchmark for us to use as a geographic identifier on whether a place could be the capital city or not. And that's this quote here. It says, the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain, itself surrounded by mountains which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even, and of an oblong shape, extending in the one direction, 3,000 stadia. So we're going to use that 3,000 stadia. So we have to convert that into some unit of measure we can use. I'm going to convert it into miles because I'm sitting here in Florida, in America, and we use miles. So if you do the math, you multiply 3,000 times 607 feet, then you divide that by a mile, which is 5,280 feet, and what you end up with, rounded, is 345 miles. That means projecting back in time and taking the sea levels during the last ice age, into account, which we have tools to do, and we will do that as we look at these different locations. We have to find a landmass that could have a 345-mile gentle slope towards the sea, with mountains on one side. That is the criteria for the landmass that the capital city sits in. So, if we can't find that landmass in the places we're looking, then it's, we're not going to do the capital city analysis because there's no point. So up first, we're going to look at Crete. The first thing I did is I went to a flood map, and I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, which is uh, kind of the average standard that academics believe the sea was um, lowered, 400 feet, which is 125 meters, which is what you're seeing here. That's how far down they think the sea level was at the peak of the last ice age what you find on these maps is when you're looking at this the the darker blue or the kind of purple that's water and then the light blue that you see we see a lot of it over by uh, Mali and sicily um, and some on the lower african coast lower left hand side Uh, that light blue is land that would be exposed if the sea was 400 feet lower that is currently underwater so when we're looking at crete which is that island uh, right above um, my head kind of up and to the left just a little bit You can see that uh, there's a little bit more blue, so I know it was zoomed out pretty good, Uh, but this doesn't add a tremendous amount of new land. No no substantial land masses become exposed. And also notice that it's not like there's some land bridge to creek or anything. In order to get to this island, even during the last ice age, you're going to have to traverse water. Crete's also a good one to start with because, honestly, any documentary or book or almost everything you see on Atlantis, it almost almost always starts with Crete. So it feels like we ought to start there, too. Uh, The only difference being that we are coming in looking for Atlantis with both a capital A and a little a. We're looking for the capital city, which would be the capital A Atlantis. And then we're looking for all those provinces. There's nine provinces. Crete becomes intriguing because it checks almost all of the boxes. Almost all of the boxes. There, there's When when you watch the documentaries, when I've watched people explain Crete, they can also almost they can usually almost line the whole thing up, but then at the very end it becomes unfrazzled because they're looking for dates around 900 BCE instead of 9,000 BCE. What's interesting about Crete, though, is that it's established... Academic knowledge, is mainstream. the mainstream view is that it has been habitated by people for 130,000 years. And I showed you the Mediterranean around Crete with the sea level lowered 400 feet, which would be the level of the last ice age. There's no land bridge to Crete. You're not getting there by walking. You're getting there by boat. So 130,000 years ago, there were people on Crete The only implication of that, not the only one, I mean a major implication of that is that if there were people there, they had to have gotten there by boat. They didn't swim, it's too far to swim. The other interesting thing is on Crete, we see a Neolithic farming culture and it's firmly established as far back as 7000 BCE. There's also evidence of an earlier culture that that farming culture replaced. And then around 3000 BCE, we see the Minoans, We see that culture come into that Neolithic farming culture on Crete. So, continuous occupation, we can look back and see these cultures. The other interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about the Minoans is there's two sets of scripts, what they call Minoan script, and also Linear A, which uh, they believe uh, procedures of Linear B. Linear B has been deciphered, Minoan script and Linear A still have not been deciphered. So we have writing uh, that we find on Crete that we cannot read and dates far back into the past before any known other writing. We also know that um, Crete has been occupied for at least 130,000 years. When we look at it, there's clearly a bulk culture. There is something exotic about the culture that we see on Crete. It's a high culture, and it seems very mature. There are well-documented ruins there. The climate in 9600 BCE was a good climate, just like it is today. And Crete is accessible via the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, which was one of our criteria. However, there are some real problems with Crete being the Atlantean capital. It's really too close to the world that Plato knew, it's too close to Egypt, it's not outside the Strait of Gibraltar. There are some arguments that there are other straits that could be interpreted as the Strait of Heracles. But Crete, it's actually part of Greece, and geographically it's so close, Plato would have known about it, and he wouldn't have told us, uh, he wouldn't have used Crete. He wouldn't have described Crete to us while telling us he was telling us a true story or something farther in the past. We also have the challenge of the landmass. And I mentioned I'm going to use this 345-mile um, slope to the sea. And even with the lowered uh, sea levels, there's just not enough room in the Mediterranean for any of these Mediterranean locations to have been the capital city. Does that mean Crete wasn't Atlantis? Of course it does not mean that. It, this is where everyone else has kind of gotten to this, and they say, well, it's not the capital, so it's not Atlantis. Maybe Santorini is, which, of course, Santorini is Santorini's ridiculously close to, um, to Crete. Well, it's not. This is The, the dialogue, if we're, if we're literally taking Plato, as true, and he tells us that there's a 3,000 stadia gently sloping plane to the sea that the city sat on, then we have to be able to find that and we just can't find that at Crete. Having said that, I think there's still a really good chance that Crete was part of the Atlantean Kingdom, which means Crete is part of Atlantis, which means if we keep looking at this, Crete might be part of Atlantis with a little a. As I was putting the images together for this video and going through my notes, I had forgotten, I've highlighted it here. There is some very, very strange underwater formations to the south of Crete. They look to me exactly like the early lidar images we're getting out of the Amazon, where it's potentially something that in this case is under the seafloor, under silt. It's been submerged. The scope of it is substantial. That the 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 area I have highlighted is um, dozens and dozens of miles across. Also, when I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, this area is still underwater. You have to lower the sea level by something like 400 meters to start to get this area above water. So I have no idea what it is, but it, it is so regimentally laid out. That it certainly does seem like something so in our analysis there is a road that was built a history of Atlantis the to the central island where the palace was what they're talking about now is how they divided the zones of land the rings of land um, so that boats could get all the way from the outside to all the way to the inside they've dug the channel we've seen that now they cut other channels into the zones. And then he's telling us that when they did it, they built basically bridges. They built bridges over the water and they made sure that a a trireme could get through, a boat could get through. But the clue here is it says they covered over the channels so as to leave a way underneath for the ships. You cover over the channel to make it passable so the people can walk all the way around The ring. So if you look at this and you're a person, you can go all the way around the circumference of the ring, or you can walk over to the road and walk in towards the central palace. So as a pedestrian, as a person on foot, which is everyone. This is telling us the infrastructure that was put in place so that you could navigate, you could walk around with your feet and get everywhere you needed to go. Now the largest of the zones into which a passage was cut from the sea was three stadia in
2: breadth, and the zone of land which came next of equal breadth. but the next two zones, the one of water, the other of land, were two stadia, and the one which surrounded the central island was a stadium
0: only in width. So now when we get to this statement, it makes a whole lot more sense because we've been able to organize and figure out the difference between the road, the canal, and the channels they cut, and then the bridges that they cut over them. So here, what we're being told is the width of these channels. How much distance did those bridges have to cover? And we're basically told that there are a couple of them in the outer ring, and there are three stadia each. The ones in the middle ring are two stadia, and the one closest to the central capital island, the palace is one stadia. The stone which was used in the work they
2: quarried from underneath the center island and from underneath the zones on the outer as well as the inner side. One kind was white, another black, and a third red.
0: This is a fairly straightforward one. It's telling us that wherever the capital city is, the stones that are around them are white, black, and red we should be able to find white black and red stones near the capital city in enough quantity to have been used for construction
2: this part of the island looked towards the south and was sheltered from the
0: north this one's fairly straightforward it gives us the orientation of the city it tells us that whatever is in the north could be like mountains or hills or something that shelters the city and then the southern part is open that implies that all these canals and all the stuff here they've been talking about are on the southern side which is why it's been drawn that way
2: the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain itself surrounded by mountains which descended towards the sea it was smooth and even and of an oblong shape extending in the one direction 3000 stadia
0: this is another requirement that might be difficult to understand or to find and it's hard to know exactly what it's saying here but I believe it's telling us that the topology that the capital city is on is going to need to be big enough to be on a plane of at least 3,000 stadia in one direction there might be more to it though we'll see the water in those parts is impassable
2: and impenetrable because there is a shore of mud in the way, and this was caused by the subsidence of the land.
0: The way I read this one with the shawl of mud, to me, suggests that there must be some type of constriction to the waterway leading up to the capital city. The open ocean is not going to be blocked by a shawl of mud. A shawl of mud is going to need a a narrow entrance or, or an area, a river, or some entrance between mountains or or something that can be blocked in a meaningful and reasonable way. The
2: earth has fallen away all round and sunk out of sight. The consequence is that in comparison of what then was, there are remaining only the bones of the wasted body as they may be called, as in the case of small islands, all the richer and softer parts of the soil having fallen away and the mere skeleton of the land being left.
0: I've included this one. You probably never heard that line from the prettiest dialogue before. He is not specifically speaking about the capital city. Instead, this is a portion of the dialogue where the characters are trying to explain the magnitude of the destruction and the dayliness of the catastrophe (laughs) that happened.
1: Limon, but
0: I think it's a very descriptive line that can help us as a nice no, have.
1: Um, we can't use it as a primary
0: requirement, the, uh, uh, but if we, we find Ayari. locations for the capital it's city that no, no, also no, show uh, signs no, of mismo. devastation, no,
1: no that will help. No,
0: no. So there it is. There are 12, okay. 12. core requirements
2: for a location no. No, no. No, no. to
0: match. But Plato tells us, about,
1: mm-hmm. the
0: uh, it's fascinating that there's only 12. Now, obviously, the capital city is going to have to sit on a landmass that matches the continent, uh, and it's going to have to also meet the requirements of the kingdom. These are requirements that we have to now still derive from the dialogue. But in all of the dialogues, in all of the thousands of years of people looking for Atlantis, the capital city. These are the only twelve clues that we have.
1: Oye, dame mis zapatos. Ah, okay. What is te llevaste mis zapatos? I don't know. No lo sé, nada. ¿Dónde, was me.
0: We're dealing with a translated document in the Platonic Dialogues, Timaeus and Critias. And we're dealing with translations sometimes that are hundreds of years old. The definition of words can drift and can be imprecise. We have to carefully define the terms that we use and make sure that no, we're not no carrying unwarranted biases into our assumptions about those words. Since this video is about the Atlantean continent, one of the first things we have to define is what a continent is. Mm, okay. There is no strict definition for what a continent It turns out a continent is defined by convention rather than any strict criteria. A continent is just a large, continuous mass. Also considered a region. It's a contrivance, a convention. This means when we consider the Atlantic continent, we have to understand that it's not as precise a definition as we would like, and it's more of a convention.
1: Huh? You put it.
0: In addition to the specific don't meanings don't of words, we also must it? make sure that we're considering the geography and the climate of the time of the tale. As we spoke, that's about 9600 oh, BCE, when the Plato tells us it? that Atlantis was destroyed. If you remember, one of our going-in assumptions is that the pieces of information that Plato tells us are true, or the north, north is true, we're going to assume they are, so we're going to I assume it's right, in the date 9600.
1: It's it's here. No, not it's a, the a, it's not.
0: It's a It's a key. But I not No, you
1: don't know where. No, you don't know where. No, you don't No,
0: not No, don't not not
1: you
0: not does it doesn't simply translate as island. That's how it's translated. And of course I thought this was a lazy translation. But when you look at kind of the rules and the methodology for translating from one language to another, you do try and be precise. And you try and have the translation into the style of language that you're going to. In this case, English. So island is not a terrible translation sometimes. Oh, see? without the context of what's being
1: translated, aspirina? It's
0: not always the best translation.
1: ¿Quiere, quiere asp- aspirina?
0: turns out when you research this word, it has an uncertain origin.
1: Traditionally, it's
0: associated with the idea of I swim.
1: It's associated
0: with a piece of land, um, a headland promontory cape island, a
1: para los
0: pollitos a Headland promontory...
1: Hey! ...island peninsula.
0: Basically, uh-huh. if you look at the last one, it's derived from the idea of nose. So think no
1: about it. The first dimension no, no. the
0: person's <laughs> black on their, back.
1: their nose is up in the air.
0: Right? So if you remember the beginning uh, of we see an Island, apple. Moon, that's like someone's nose sticking up out of the water. So we have that view, but it's not two-dimensional. We can have the three-dimensional view with a side view, where look at a person's profile. And their nose is sticking out that could be a peninsula it could be a promontory it could be a headland it could be a cape could be an island could be whatever so now when we go back to that quote there was an island situated in the front of the street which are by you called the pillars of heracles so this passage comes to there was a point of high land that juts out into a large body of water you have to swim to situated in front of the straits, which you are, which are you by a call? Or oh, mm-hmm. oh, here, please. sorry. Now, you have to swim to, it's interesting, because if you dig even deeper into the roots of the word, later on, it also meant that it required a big yeah, boat to Yeah, uh,
1: maybe in the afternoon.
0: So, the yeah. root of the word is based on, you have to swim to it, that's very rudimentary, Later on, that same translation evolved from having to swim to, to you need a big boat to get to it. All makes sense. And all can accurately be an island, but an island is a very constrictive definition, and we need to make sure that we go in with our eyes wide open. All right, so here the island or the continent was larger than Libya and Asia put together, Basically when the Greeks are talking about Asia, they're basically talking about Asia Minor or mostly Turkey, that's where the Persians lived, that was what they had to deal with. So when you look, and Libya wasn't quite as far into Africa, but it was more of the coast towards uh, Morocco and towards the Atlas Mountains from Egypt. When it, you can measure this lots of different ways. There's no way to be super precise, but when you get the square mileage of Asia Minor and Libya, it comes in just a hair under a million square miles. So we're going to use that designation. If something is larger than whatever they're talking about here, we're going to say it has to be larger than one million square miles, which is a pretty good interpretation and, um, and, and uh, quantification of this requirement.
1: Ah. Uh
0: the men of atlantis has subjected the parts of libya within the columns of heracles as far as egypt and of europe as far as the
1: as
0: a requirement this means that the continent of atlantis has to be geographically related to these places it has to be close enough to libya and egypt and greece and europe to make sense to make socio-economic sense,
1: Oye, to wage war in those
0: areas.
1: I don't know where you put it. Where don't they don't they put it? Don't they put it? every variety of
0: food to spring up abundantly. It's
1: i aquí, this pero uh, uh, no no no.
0: Todo lo llevaste para aquí en That's um, no that's
1: local.
0: It is
1: But this is telling us that.
0: The continents of Atlantis were at a rich, llevar, fertile soil,
1: pasarme and la, had a good climate. No a mijo, pero yo si mismo voy we fa-
0: fa- look the eldest who was the first We look for Atlantis. We look for Atlantis. We look for Atlantis. We so that means the continent has to have some relationship to the Atlantic Ocean and it should have some relationship
1: to
0: the name Atlantic. I thought I it was decile, And that which is now only a name and was it's then something more than a name, not going to grow
1: legs it and helpful. walk away.
0: Was dug out of the earth in many parts. The continent should be rich <sighs> in minable mineral resources.
1: You Where'd you
0: put it? Don't they don't they pony casting
1: around it? Easily few. Don't they pone donde? The donde it pone to
0: get a uh, so so calc- <laughs> you know. Keep track of your
1: own shoes. Keep track. The there were a
0: great number of elephants on the island.
1: Where'd you put it? Don't they So here when
0: we're looking for the
1: continent. yeah, you did it. It's good. it's the
0: elephant. And I think
1: the association with elephants, I don't remember the one worth mentioning. Aha!
0: <laughs> 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 Found it. They dug it. a canal around the there whole the the th- plain th-
1: oh, that one.
0: There was 10,000 uh-huh. stevia. in there. There you
1: go.
0: So this is talking about the agricultural <laughs> prowess, and it's I talking go. about the plain where they grew stuff. Uh, it also tells us in another. Uh, session I didn't include here, but it's really part of this one, I probably should have, oh, yeah. that there were 60,000 10 by 10 stadium farms, that was the bulk of the population, oh, they were a agrarian oh, population, they go into lots of detail around what the farms, oh, yeah.
1: the 10,000, sorry,
0: 60,000 uh, 10 stadium by 10 stadium farms have to then be on a plane and the plane itself has to be able to support a canal that they had dug all the way around a ditch they dug all the way around it that measured in total 10,000 feet in length we can we yeah we'll
1: we will go
0: Starting to get asked questions, which I appreciate. I like One of the questions I've gotten a couple times is where do I think these videos are headed? Here's
1: some fruta. Don't
0: fruta. We need to get you some fruit. Sometimes those questions come along with will just tell me the answer. And of course, we can't do that. We have to methodically work our way through the define the requirements, do the analysis, and reach a conclusion. But I still do know what we're building towards. We're building towards a grand unified theory of Atlantis in the same way that Henrik Lehmann was able to come up with a grand unifying theory of Troy. I view them as parallel. When we're finished, we will have meticulously and scientifically examined all of the primary sources and done groundbreaking analysis of the different possible locations but don't worry i'm not going to leave you hanging. there's an answer it's an elegant answer and once presented it's an obvious answer the first additional requirement is that as we do our location analysis we have to be sure that we are looking at that location through a lens that includes the time of the tail Plato tells us Atlantis was destroyed in 9600 BCE. So for each location we look at as we evaluate it, we have to understand what was going on in 9600 BCE. He also tells us that the way to Atlantis was the way to the opposite continent. I think this is a groundbreaking and revolutionary statement. It tells us that in 3000 BCE, when the Atlantean myth was chiseled into the temple of Nice at Saïs, it included the knowledge of an opposite continent. That right there is historic. And if we use my assumption to believe Plato, it's groundbreaking. I believe it's reasonable to ask, since there is an opposite continent, what the implications would be to dismissing that statement. So we will look at the way to the opposite continent as part of our analysis of both the kingdom and when we're looking for the capital city. Plato also tells us that it was accessible via the Atlantic Ocean. So any of the provinces, the kingdom of Atlantis, they all must be accessible via the Atlantic Ocean doesn't mean they have to be in the Atlantic Ocean or on it, but as you moved around the kingdom and you moved through the Atlantic, that has to be the way to these places. It should include agricultural prowess. This is a long time in the past, over 11,000 years ago. But when we look at the location and the time and everything else, we should see, if nothing else, the potential With the massive farming that Plato talks about. We'll also use the twin list, which has names in it, to see if we can phonetically or linguistically locate the names of any of the multiple provinces. And some of those provinces should be diving islands. Whatever that is, that is what Plato tells us about. So let's dig into 9600 BCE. Some of this will be location dependent, so we can't do all of our analysis until we have picked a location to analyze. But generally, on the planet, 9600 BCE equates to the end of the last ice age and the end of what's called the Younger Dryas event. Now what's interesting is there were actually three dryases. The Younger Dryas, the Older Dryas, and the Oldest Dryas. One of the first things I had to find out, because I didn't know, was what's a Dryas? Well, it turns out it's a type of flowering plant that does really well at higher elevations in colder weather. Interestingly, the Dryas is also named after the Greek Dryad, the nymph It's amazing Greek mythology. Which is... I think it's a completely tangential coincidence but it's also interesting that that the name from ancient Greek mythology is what we use in current academics to denote the end of the last ice age which ties to the end of Atlantis and we get the Atlantis story through a different set of ancient Greek documents. I just find that interesting. At this time the world was in, in the Neolithic period. Neolithic just means new, neo, and lithic, stone age, new stone age, or lithic means more relating to stone. So something new about stone. This particular period in the Mediterranean region is also associated with what we call the pre-pottery Neolithic, which just simply means what it says, it's it's the Neolithic period before people figured out that you could cook dirt, get dirt wet, and cook it, and they pots out it. So all the tools and all their pots and everything were made out of stone. The other thing that is really interesting about this time period is that we're involved in what they call the first agricultural revolution. Exactly at this time period. Plato tells us the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture. And historically, The mainstream view is that 9600 BCE was in, we are in the first agricultural revolution. Interesting. We're going to examine the twin names. When we're looking for the kingdom of Atlantis, if we find a location that seems to exhibit evidence of something going on in 9600 BCE, but we can't line it up to the Olympian capital that we have a lot of information on. The next step will be to look at these names and do phonetic and linguistic analysis to see if there's a location that fits as a province. One of the last things to clean up as we finish our requirements gathering phase is this idea of Atlantis being advanced. Advanced technology, advanced something. So how does that concept of advanced, given what Plato says in the dialogues, fit into the views of traditional historians? That's the question we have to answer. Specifically, we're talking about agricultural and and maybe they're advanced in agriculture. Plato spends time talking about how they organize themselves. They seem to be advanced organizationally. He talks about a lot of agricultural prowess. He mentions 60,000 10 by 10 stadia farms. Uh, We'll we'll do another video on what a stadia is. Just know 10 stadia is about a mile. So those would be 60,000 one-mile square farm plots. But it also tells us the Atlanteans were very good at controlling the flow of water. They dug a massive irrigation ditch. One of their ditches was 10,000 stadia. That's a lot. That's, that's a lot of ditch. And the last thing, I don't know how we can use this in analysis, but it's one of the last things I pulled out when it came to the word advance, is that whatever else was going on, the Atlanteans were not very good at war. While they were able to conquer Libya, in Egypt, and parts of Europe, they couldn't beat the Greeks. And in 9600 BCE, these aren't the Greeks that we think of when we see movies and TV shows. These are basically proto-Greeks. So very early civilizations were able to beat the Atlanteans. So the Atlanteans were very good at agriculture, they were probably advanced, they seemed to be advanced in how they structured their society, but they were not overly advanced at war. That wasn't that doesn't seem to be what they were good at. And those three statements are all supported by the personic dialogues. Thank you for sticking with me through the requirements analysis. I know it was a little tedious and we're wading through waters that other people have been through already. But I think it's important for us to take a clean look at this and to have done the analysis ourselves as opposed to picking a source and using a third party to tell us what the dialogues say instead we just went through them and we've now derived our own list uh, firsthand from a primary source so the question becomes where do we look i think it'd be naive to ignore all of the locations that people have identified as having characteristics that lead some people to believe that location is their lost i guess lost city that seems to be what they look for, they tend to look for the city. So I've collected a list of 12 places that seem to be the ones that are most popular as locations for Atlantis. If you notice a location up here that would fit on this map somewhere that I don't have, please let me know. It's going to take a while to get through all of these and do the analysis so there's plenty of time to add an additional location or two in as we go through this. We're gonna start with the ones that are closest to Greece, Santorini, Crete, and Malta, then we'll move out into um, the ones that are closest to the Strait of Gibraltar, so Cadiz, uh, the Ceuta, Mesa, the Rissach Pressure, Canary Islands, and the Azores, and then we'll look at the ones that are probably too far away to be the capital city, so these would be candidates for some of those provinces that we talked about ruled by the sets of twins. Uh, well, not... They're not not ruled in sets of twins, but they're ruled by twins who were born in That's because they're twins. And that's Doggerland, Antarctica, Bimini, and Aslan. I know Aslan is actually farther west, but it was hard to to land on the sides of the map that allowed us to see all of these. If you notice something missing, please let me know. There's plenty of time to add it. Hi,
1: Butternut. Hi, Fudge Packer.
0: I've spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to test the seafaring navigation routes that we can project back into this time period. I've looked at the generic trade routes as they emerge through the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries, and I'll show you a genericized version of those. First, though, I wanted to see if I could find the first time. And the only first time I could find is Columbus. Now, I know we can argue that Columbus didn't, isn't the first seafarer to discover North America, so I'm not arguing that. I just want to see, for someone who didn't know how to get there but was using all the information they could gather, what routes did they take? One of the things that people tend to forget is Columbus sailed to the New World four different times. So here, we can look at the way he went each time. And what happens is, as he learns the tides and he learns the currents and he learns how to get there, he continues to make his route farther south, which I think we can use to denote the zones that we're looking for of an Atlantean empire. We're told the capital city is directly outside of the street the Strait of Heracles, which we interpret as the Strait of Gibraltar. So directly is an ambiguous term, but it's not a completely meaningless term. I've drawn three zones here that we can use um, to interpret that word directly, with obviously zone one being the most directly, zone two kind of directly, and zone three arguably directly. So I think the locations that line up in these zones are the ones that we will at least start with our analysis of the capital city. Okay, guys. Trying to find Everybody that. outside. You know, another important point is that this isn't a game of winners and losers. So we don't have this idea of someone's going to win if the place they think is Atlantis is also the location of the capital city. Atlantis is a big word. It was a big kingdom, and it can mean a lot of things. Is No reason to believe that the provinces that Plato mentions were any less advanced, whatever advanced means, um, than the capital city was. We just have to start putting some milestones down, some markers down, so that we can figure out exactly what he's talking about. Because if we can find the capital, if that exists then it's reasonable to assume that those provinces exist. And if the provinces exist and the capital exists and we found stuff at all these locations that points back to Atlantis, then all of these locations are in the kingdom of Atlantis and they're one of those named provinces in the twins list. We just have to figure all this out. So that's how we're going to go about organizing all of these locations that we look at. I'm excited to get started. I hope you are too. First up, let's do Crete.
1: Get everybody out!
0: Out! 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 What we're working towards is called a grand unified theory of Atlantis. One of the items we have to overcome is we examine all of the different potential locations. What Me is what is called buddy. the fool's choice.
1: Yep. The false choice is when
0: <laughs> you, you are presented uh-huh. with a question Go and, play. and Go on. believe that the answer is selecting one of many possibilities. It's called the false choice because in the answer, you believe that you cannot consider all of the potential answers, all the possibilities, but that you have to pick one. If you remember, this was exactly the type of thinking, the fool's choice, that we came up against when we were doing our Critias analysis. And for thousands of years, scholars have been forcing a fool's choice when it comes to identifying which Critias is speaking. People have tried to assume it's either Critias the grandfather or Critias the tyrant. The answer, of course, is that it's one dialogue is one of them and the other dialogue is the other of them. That was a fool's choice, and we've all fallen for it. So I'm going to introduce here, in our grand unified theory of Atlantis, the Critias Clause. And the Critias Clause is basically how we're going to combat that fool's choice. Basically when confronted with a choice between A or B, we are also going to consider A and B. It might seem obvious to do this, but if you think about it, if you enter into any conversation with someone who has passion for Atlantis, what's going to happen is, they're going to think it's location A. If you don't agree with them, you think it's location B, you will then argue because the belief is it can only be location A or location B. Atlantis was three things. It was a city, a continent, and a kingdom. So so why do we insist on trying to find Atlantis? What what do we even mean when we say that word Atlantis? Usually what I hear is they're applying the concept of the continent and kingdom to the city. It's a really weird way of looking at things. Atlantis is at least 10 different places. We know that it's a a capital city and nine provinces, 10, 10 locations total. So when we look for Atlantis, we're going to try and identify whether it was the capital city or one of the provinces. The other thing I realized we need to clean up is the unit of measure that's being used in the dialogue. It's this thing called a stadia. There is some arguable confusion. Yeah, that's not the right word. You can choose a couple different values for stadia depending on how you decide to ground. The dialogue. We're going to ground the dialogue along its common sense and and obvious nature. Meaning, Plato wrote during a time when the Greek stadia was 606.9 feet, went about 607 feet. This became the what they call the Alexandrian measure from Alexander the Great. Both Plato and Alexander the Great lived at the same time. Plato was a lot older; Alexander was a lot younger. But they think they had 12 years of overlap. And then this measurement of a stadia went on through Roman times to kind of hold as a 607 feet. So that's what we're going to use here. So the first unit of measure we need to convert is a tool that we're going to use to identify all these different locations whether it's a candidate for the capital city or a candidate for one of the provinces and there was a line that i presented in one of the earlier videos that is very rarely used but i think it's the perfect benchmark for us to use as a geographic identifier on whether a place could be the capital city or not and that's this quote here it says, the country immediately about and surrounding the city was a level plain, itself surrounded by mountains which descended towards the sea. It was smooth and even and of an oblong shape extending in the one direction 3,000 stadia. So we're going to use that 3,000 stadia. So we have to convert that into some unit of measure we can use. I'm going to convert it into miles because I'm sitting here in Florida, in America, and we use miles. So if you do the math, you multiply 3,000 times 607 feet, and then you divide that by a mile, which is 5,280 feet, and what you end up with rounded is 345 miles. That means projecting back in time and taking the sea levels during the last ice age into account, which we have tools to do, and we will do that as we look at these different locations. We have to find a landmass that could have a 345 mile gentle slope towards the sea with mountains on one side. That is the criteria for the landmass that the capital city sits in. So, if we can't find that landmass in the places we're looking, then, this, then we're not going to do the capital city analysis because there's no point. <gasps> so, up first, we're going to look at Creeks. The first thing I did is I went to a flood map, and I lowered the sea level by 400 feet, which is uh, kind of the average standard that academics believe the sea was um, lowered, 400 feet, which is 125 meters, which is what you're seeing here. That's how far down they think the sea level was at the peak of the last ice age. What you find on these maps is, when you're looking at this, the, the darker blue or the kind of purple, that's water. And then the light blue that you see, we see a lot of it over by uh, Mali and Sicily, um, and some on the lower African coast, lower left-hand side. Uh, that light blue is land that would be exposed if the sea was 400 feet lower, that is currently underwater. So when we're looking at Cree, which is that island uh, right above um, my head kind of up and to the left just a little bit you can see that uh, there's a little bit more blue which i know it zoomed out pretty good uh, but this, this doesn't add a tremendous amount of new land no, no substantial land masses come um become exposed and also notice that it's not like there's some land bridge to treat or anything in order to get to this island even during the last ice age you're gonna have to traverse water <laughs>
1: What's up, Chucker?
0: Crete's also a good one to start with because honestly, any documentary or book, or almost everything you see on Atlantis, it almost starts, almost always starts with Crete. So it feels like we ought to start there too. Uh, the only difference being that we are coming in looking for Atlantis with both a capital A and a little a. We, we're looking for the capital city, which would be the capital A, Atlantis, and then we're looking for all of those provinces. There's nine provinces. Crete becomes intriguing because it checks almost all of the boxes, almost all of the boxes. There, there's, when, when you watch the documentaries, when I've watched people explain Crete, they can, also almost, they can usually almost line the whole thing up, but then at the very end it becomes unfrazzled because They're looking for dates around 900 BCE instead of 9000 BCE. What's interesting about Crete, though, is that its established academic knowledge is mainstream. The mainstream view is that it has been habitated by people for 130,000 years. And I showed you the Mediterranean around Crete, with the sea level lowered 400 feet, which would be the level of the last ice age. There's no land bridge to Crete. You're not getting there by walking. You're getting there by boat. So 130,000 years ago, there were people on Crete. The only implication of that—not the only one—a main, a major implication of that is that if there were people there they had to have gotten there by boat. they didn't swim too far to swim the other interesting thing is on crete we see a neolithic farming culture and it's firmly established as far back as seven thousand bce there's also evidence of an earlier culture that that farming culture replaced and then around 3000 bce we see the minoans we see that culture come into that neolithic farming culture on crete so continuous occupation, we can look back and see these cultures. The other interesting thing, one of the other interesting things about the Minoans is there's two sets of scripts, what they call Minoan script, and also Linear A, which are both, uh, they believe, uh, the uh, preceders of Linear B. Linear B has been deciphered, Minoan script and Linear A still have not been deciphered. So we have writing, uh we find on Crete, that we cannot read and dates far back into the past before any known other writing. We also know that um, Crete has been occupied for at least 130,000 years. When we look at it, there's clearly a bulk culture. There is something exotic about the culture that we see on Crete. It's a high culture and it seems very mature. There are well-documented ruins there. The climate in 9600 BCE was a good climate just like it is today. And Crete is accessible via the Mediterranean from the Atlantic, which was one of our criteria. However, there are some real problems with Crete being the Atlantean capital. It's really too close to the world that Plato knew. It's too close to Egypt. It's not outside the Strait of Gibraltar. There's some arguments that there are other straits that could be interpreted as the Strait of Heracles. But Crete, it's actually part of Greece. And geographically, it's so close, Plato would have known about it, and he wouldn't have told us, uh, he wouldn't have used Crete, he wouldn't have described Crete to us while telling us he was telling us a true story of something farther in the past. We also have the challenge of the landmass, and I mentioned I'm going to use this 345 mile um, slope to the sea. And even with the lower uh, sea levels, there's just not enough room in the Mediterranean for any of these Mediterranean locations to have been the capital city. Does that mean Crete wasn't Atlantis? Of, of course it does not mean that. It, this is where everyone else has kind of gotten to this and they say, well, it's not the capital, so it's not Atlantis. Maybe Santorini is, which of course is, Santorini is ridiculously close to, uh, to Crete. Well it's not, this is, the, the dialogue, if we're, if we're literally taking Plato is true, and he tells us that there's a 3,000 stadia gently sloping plane to the sea that the city sat on, then we have to be able to find that, and we just can't find that at Crete. Having said that, I think there's still a really good chance that Crete was part of the Atlantean Kingdom, which means Crete is part of Atlantis, which means If we keep looking at this, Crete might be part of Atlantis with a little a. As I was putting the images together for this video, going through my notes, I had forgotten, but I've highlighted it here. There are some very, very strange underwater formations to the south of Crete. They look to me exactly like the early LIDAR images we're getting out of the Amazon, where it's potentially something that in this case is under the seafloor under silt has been submerged the scope of it is substantial that the, the the area i have highlighted is um dozens and dozens of miles across also when i lowered the sea level by 400 feet this area is still under water you have to lower the sea level by something like 400 meters to start to get this area above water. So I have no idea what it is, but it it is so regimentally laid out that it certainly does seem like something. So in our analysis, when we look at Crete, there's lots of evidence that it was probably a memory, it's probably all that was left of the Atlantean culture that also would have evolved, because it was considered earlier, and there are still unexplored and interesting anomalies in and around the island. So <laughs> fire up the old Atlantic Detector. Here, there's a lot of Compelling information on Crete, I'm not going to try and go into it all. I don't want these videos to be an hour long. Uh, Crete is easy uh, to research and is very well documented with the Minoans. I pulled excerpts from two articles here, one from the University of Washington, one from uh, Cambridge University Press. The first one is just um, uh, an official academic statement establishing the Minoans 5,000 years ago and then replacing uh, the Neolithic uh agrarian community four thousand years before that and then i pulled an article from cambridge university that shows there's evidence maybe of even um, something before the the, uh, the agrarian culture that got replaced right the neolithic reoccupation um that gets us all oh, you guys get the fuck out the gap. i'm trying to find percentages get, and, and there's get, no easy way to do get, it. And, in, get uh, out. and the percentage seems very Walk accurate on. um Get it's it. more just a guide. Get course, if you look at all the compelling information they found on Crete, if you look at the Minoans and the rules they have, and you look at that culture get and all of get
1: the out.
0: Um, evidence around no, that culture, get we, out. The fact get we out. know no, that no, was uh, occupied out. for at least 130,000 years. We have the agrarian uh, Neolithic uh, population there. Uh, we can see that. So all in all, get there's out. a 27% time gap. That, that that's all there is. We we have culturally, we have the anthropology, we have um, all of the artifacts. We can trace, arguably, the occupation, uh, a, a Neolithic occupation, back to within a margin of error of Atlantis. That margin of error is basically twenty-seven percent. That big margin of error. I I get it. But all we have to do is solve that twenty-seven percent and create the province of Atlantis almost perfectly. We also know that the Atlantians have pushed into the Mediterranean area waging war. Crete is a very strong location to do that against the
1: Greeks.
0: So if Crete's one of those provinces, it should be a name in the twins list. Now I've worked with a linguist And we've loosely identified some associations. I haven't finished the studying. So all I want to do now when we find a place that feels like it's it's, it's a good candidate as a province of Atlanta, I want to identify the potential twin names, and we'll park those. And then when we get the whole thing figured out, then we'll go back and we'll dig into that linguistic um, and phonetic information and see how close of a match we can get. Here are the two names I like. The Crete, and the Minoans are the Mises and the Messer, uh twins. Both of those have a uh, linguistic and phonetic tie to the Minoans, and I think we can probably find some experts to see how close we can get to agreeing that those names linguistically come from this region. So I think it's really interesting when you really look at it that Crete aligning to the Atlantean Empire, the only piece of data we don't have is a 27% gap in the timeline. We can get all the way back using current academic understanding. We can get all the way back to 7000 BC. We need to get back to 9600 BC. The difference there, if you take the reciprocal of that 27% is 73. So we're going to use that since everything else seems to line up. I'm going to say there's a 73% chance that Crete was one of the Atlantean provinces. There's a 0% chance it was the Atlantean capital. It doesn't fit any of the criteria um, that we established, and it can't stand up to our Atlantis detector of that 345-mile gently sloping plane to the sea. Crete has a lot going for it, though. It has well-documented ancient history. It's still a tourist site, so it's not only legitimate ancient history, but it's very well-studied ancient history. It has multiple forms of writing, some of which are still undeciphered that suggest something going on in the past. It's a cultural fit for Atlantis, and it seems to culturally Um, present in a lot of the frescoes and murals that we can still see, uh, concepts that seem to resonate with the Atlantean ideals. It's a location known to be populated in 9600 BCE, and actually well before that. And we have a date of 7000 BCE for an agricultural transformation. That time period, 7000 BCE, to 9600 BCE, it's a long time, but... The, it's very hard to see that far back in the past. So those are approaching a margin of error. I'm not saying they're within a margin of error, but they are approaching a margin of error. So there's a, rel- a relatively small gap then between the mainstream academic view and the view that this was a province of Atlanta. We've identified uh, two twin names. This should be studied as possible linguistic uh, or phonetic relationships with the Minoans. And we're going to put Crete as a 73% chance of having been a province of Atlantis based upon our analysis. We'll come back to that and we'll verify that because we're not going to finish this series until, everything, until we've answered everything. Uh, but right now we're going to park this the a 73% positive chance. <laughs>
1: Shut
0: up, fucker! I know we've just gotten started on the location analysis, which is, of course, the interesting piece to this entire series. But in order to do this right, we have to have the context set. And some the reactions I got to the first video suggested to me that I hadn't done a good enough job yet of explaining the methodology that we're following. I'm going to do that in this video. I'm currently also working on the Malta video and that place is bonkers. Um, So it's taking me a little longer than I thought it would to get it all together. So from a methodology standpoint, we are working towards a grand unified theory of Atlantis. As I point out from the other videos, but I'll point out here, Atlantis is actually three things. This is very clear from the dialogue. It's a city, it's a continent, and it's a kingdom. In the look for Atlantis, we're often confronted with what we call the fool's choice. This goes along with Occam's Razor. Occam's Razor says that we want to push away all the noise and that the most simple answer, the most obvious answer, is probably the right answer. The fool's choice tells us that we don't want to find ourselves restricting our analysis, thinking that we have to make choices between A or B, when in fact, we can also consider A and B, which is what we're doing, and that is clearly the foundational principle that's gonna lead us to this grand unified theory of Atlantis. As I've said before, and I will continue to make the point, Atlantis is at least in the places. We get this dialogue, so it's silly to think that the places that show signs of something going on in 9600 B.C. and show signs of an exotic culture, it's almost like because we are finding more than one of them, it's nullified our ability to correlate this, these findings to the dialogues. We're going to use this map and we're going to methodically look at each of these places and make an assessment. We're going to decide if the place qualifies as a location that could be the capital city, and if not, we're going to see if it qualifies as a location that could be one of the Atlantean provinces. Once we've done that, we're going to look phonetically at the twins list to see if there's any hints or quotes.
1: Use the the Perrieres map.
0: I'll give you an example. In the very first video, we looked at two twin names, Gnosis and Mester. Now, I don't want to jump ahead. I'm trying to be as methodical as I can, but that first one, M-N-E-S-E-U-S, phonetically is pronounced almost identical to K-N-O-S-S-O-S. This is the name of the Minoan capital on Crete. Interesting. We're not to that analysis yet, but this is the types of things that we're breaking apart with this methodology so that we can organize the whole thing and build both a physical and a linguistic case. So that's our goal, and that's why we're using this worksheet. As we go through these videos, we we will record our analysis. And by the time we're done, and by the time we come back and look at the areas that we've identified gaps in, this worksheet is going to paint the entire picture of our Grand Unified Theory. So as we work through our training like and in the our analysis, what I'm doing is we identify all of the criteria. And then if we can't meet any of the criteria, we attempt to convert that gap into a percentage. As I mentioned in the creep video, but I probably wasn't as clear as I could have been. This isn't a perfect science. The percentage is going to look more precise than it actually is. It's more of a guide. But I wanted to convert it into something quantifiable so we can see when we're far apart and we can see when we're not. For example, with Crete, everything lines up. We have the exotic culture, we have um, the ruins, we have uh, a landmass that would have been strategic, may have been mentioned, may not have been. We have to do that twins analysis. But the goal is always to get to a percentage. So in this case we took the timeline of Atlantis, ninety six hundred BC, we took the timeline that um, modern archaeology gets us to on Crete, seven thousand BC. We looked at that gap of twenty six hundred years, we converted it into a percentage, how far, you know, how far back we need to go versus how far back can we go. It's twenty seven percent. That is the only gap. That's the only gap if if we are taking Plato's story as true, it is a twenty seven percent gap. So now, when we start to put all these places together, we'll be able to see how far or close apart we are. And what we're going to find, I believe, is that we're really not that far apart. That we've found enough, especially when we start to factor in Gobegle Tepe, which I'll probably do a separate video on, that establishes the technology level, that establishes that advanced idea. So we know what we're looking for. We're looking for a Gobegle Tepe somewhere. So we have it all. We'll, We'll quantify it. Once we lay it all out in that worksheet, then we'll see where we are. The other thing we're looking for, as I've mentioned, is the idea of Atlantis with a capital A and then Atlantis without the capital A. Now, I think to punctuate it, it's always going to have a capital A, but my point there is one of these ten Atlantises is going to be the capital, that's the one with the capital A. The, all the others will be provinces. They're all still Atlantis. As, as we've talked about, the Atlantis is three things. That, that's one of our themes. The last thing I'm going to do is I'm going to start doing kind of a... It won't be the same piece of film, but I, I'm going to start doing a summary at the beginning of these videos. If you're following along, please don't get put off by that. I'm trying to keep these as um, uh, concise Uh, as possible, but we've got new people coming in. For example, one of the comments I got on one of the other videos was, what a shame it was that I didn't know what I was talking about because I'm not considering the dialogue. I clearly haven't read it. Well, of course, not only have have... We read it here together, but we have decomposed it. We've done a lot of work with it. But, but people don't know. They watch video number eight or nine. They don't go back and watch videos number one or two. So I'm going to start including that, that that summary introduction, whatever you want to call it, just to keep people up to speed. It's probably the right thing to do. And I'm learning how to communicate this as much as I'm learning, just like you are, all these interesting things about Atlantis. So I'm working on a treat. As I said, that should be out by this weekend. Um, um, and uh, thank you for following along, and thank you for sticking with me. Ah, fuck. Malta is an amazing place and has long been associated with the Atlantean legend. It's a small island located just south of the the Tyrrhenian Sea in the Mediterranean. Now, so the Tyrrhenian Sea is one of the only named locations listed in those two Platonic dialogues that we're working with, Critias and Timaeus. It still matches this location today. It's a known place. It was known when Solon went to Egypt and then named his held all the way through today. They also mention other places by name. I mean, they mention Europe, they mention Egypt, they mention Libya, they mention Asia, they mention Greece. Those are very big names. The Mediterranean Sea is the only, it's the only body of water mentioned other than the Atlantic Ocean. On Malta, we can see that same agrarian uh, community, the same agrarian transformation that we saw on Crete, only on Malta it happens in 5200 BC.